and the fact that they were here in the city and um, have, particularly here in Germantown, have a, a really strong relationship with the community and have influenced a lot of artists outside of musicians is important. And as I think it's one of the understated uh, elements of this region that the Sun Ra Orchestra uh, had a, a significant influence on artists in Germantown and in yeah. the northwest part of Philadelphia. Yeah, most definitely. Whether they're visual artists, poets, dancers, musicians, <clears throat> photographers, filmmakers, people learn things from Sun Ra. I mean, he was dealing with pageantry and theatrics mm -hmm. long before anybody. He was doing... Um, the kind of video projections that we can do now with, you know, just your cell phone and a laptop. He was doing that in the late 60s. Yeah. Using yeah. films and, you know, uh, and projectors. It was crazy that they brought that much material with them. Yeah, very know? much so. And one of the things I always find interesting uh, with people like that is that um, anytime I think that there are people whether it's someone like Sun Ra or P-Funk or Frank Zappa or Fishbone where there's a lot of spectacle and a, and a bit of humor a lot of people really focus in on that you know mm -hmm. you know because like you know people I've been listening to a lot of Frank Zappa lately and a lot of people focus on oh yeah like you know he makes a lot of dick and fart jokes and he makes boob jokes and it's like yeah and there's like serious musicianship behind it and Zappa was very huge into artists owning their masters the intellectual property he even sort of was talking about streaming music of course like he didn't use that term because no one knew that right. in the 80s you know s similar with Sun Ra where it's like yeah the multimedia elements the you know the combining of these media forms talking about very serious issues really taking this kind of like subversive uh, subversive approach about like sort of um taking the sort of like elite element out of music and like literally bringing it to the people and having mm -hmm. that be a part of the manifesto it's this amazing thing and to really do it from a very african-centered science fiction artistic construct for a particular reason that's super amazing and yeah and and a lot of like the tag of afrofuturism which kind of becomes like this cool like uniform that people wear now it predates all of that and like that doesn't really get talked about you know people are like oh that's he true. was this weird dude who wore like dashikis in the grocery store it's like yeah but there's like something way more to it than that absolutely absolutely and i, I think um uh I was talking about um, Nina Simone mm -hmm. at a presentation a couple weeks ago, and I was talking about how she is an artist that is very hard to define in terms of genre. It's just it's really difficult to yeah to define her, and what you start to see is that there are a whole lot of people who are really hard to define when you really think about it. Like, for instance, Amiri Baraka. Amiri Baraka, a significant amount of his work is really science fiction. Yeah, yeah. But he never gets that kind of... Right. We see him as a political creature. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of his work that's science fiction, and he really loved science fiction. Yeah. Um, and he saw that 
what science fiction offered is this idea of a world that you could create that's your own. So he's like, well, hell, why can't a black person create a, a world of their right, own? Right. So that became a space for him yeah. um, to do his thing. And so I, I think that's one of the reasons why science fiction would eventually be uh, uh, embraced by so many black people. Mm-hmm. Because not because they actually thought of the idea, right. but because other folk had already offered that pathway. Um, and we're going back with Baraka, we're going back to the 1950s. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so it's, this is not new. Right. This is not new. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, that is a perfect segue. Um, so this is the punk rock barbershop, black artists talking about their white influences. I am your host, Michael Robertson Reed. We are coming to you from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, also known as Marion Anderson City. Uh, our guest today is Mr. Homer Jackson. Homer, say hello to the good people. Hi, folks. How are you all? And then the people will say that they are doing well. Uh, so Homer is someone, I guess we've known each other for about nine or ten years now. It's, it's right. been a while. I think so, It's been yes. a while. Um, how would you describe what you do? Because I've been trying to think of what is an appropriate tag for your vocational through line is it all around renaissance man is it artistic curator slash professional agitator like how do you how, how do you describe yourself it, I, I i usually don't i guess the best way would be survivor okay survivor survivor, survivor. um i had this crazy thought when i was a young person that i wanted to be an artist and I have been surviving that dance ever since. Okay. Okay. Um, so this is something that we're gonna do. So we'll we'll talk for about maybe sixty to ninety minutes, and we'll 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 go th- a bit through your life story. So we'll hear your origin story. You know, we'll hear when how the uh, the seeds of wanting to be an artist first got implanted in your brain, and how that has manifested. And we will spend part of the time talking about the various white folks that have influenced you in the artistic field. And if you want, you know, we can go into what your feelings are about that because, you know, this is America. Influences are real. The double consciousness or triple, quadruple consciousness <laughs> is, is, is a thing. Um, so that's part of the reason why I wanted to, to do this podcast. How does that sound? That sounds great. That sounds good. Nice. So something I'm, I'm wondering about is... Um, I've recorded two episodes of this podcast already, um, and I've been reaching out to people, telling them about like what I want to do. And usually when I tell people, so this is black artists talking about their white influences, I get one of three reactions. Either it's like, oh, that's amazing. That's crazy. That's super niche. No one is doing that. So like I'm completely on board. Or you get people who really like are like, what is that about? Like they're not necessarily anti it, but they're like, I'm super confused. Or recently I've gotten some people who look at me and I can tell like they're very like, that does not sound interesting to me at all. Why would I want to talk about white people influencing me? So I'm curious as to what 
your reaction was when I told you about this because we we had an email exchange. So it you know it's right. always hard to tell what people's tone is over email. So I'm like. I don't know if Homer is into this or not. So yeah, I'm curious um, what your thought I, I was. I think personally, I think that the for me, the idea of as opposed to black, white, mm -hmm. binary situation, sure. just a broader kind of uh, approach to uh, your influences internationally. Gotcha. Across the spectrum, who, who are the people that shaped um, or guided the possibilities for you. I think the binary piece, black, white, uh, is actually limiting. Um, and I think that when we think of, I just lost my voice. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I hmm. don't hear myself in here. Um, I yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's all still. It's still recording. going. Yeah, it's still oh, going. It's still going. Me. Yeah. Um. So. Uh, you're still getting levels and everything. Yeah, I'm still getting oh, okay. levels. Yeah, so yeah, you're so, good. Oh, I hear you now. Okay. I hear you now. So, uh, yeah, again, the binary uh, black-white uh, dialogue is limiting. The, the, the global international influence, I think, is more important. And I also think there is a... Uh, how can I describe it? There is a... Uh, a cheat mm -hmm. in the black-white influences piece because the cheat is the entire institutional structure of American culture is what we're opposed against. Gotcha. And we don't have any strong institutions. In fact, most of the institutions that black people have have been black people mm -hmm. as yeah. an individual institution. Uh, for instance, um, I grew up uh, down the street from a musician by the name of um, Hassan Ibn uh, Ali, who was known as the legendary Hassan and who worked with Max Roach. And he's sort of this figure that's considered to be between Thelonious Monk and Cecil Taylor, this innovator. And he's also credited for... Um, having been an influence on John Coltrane and his concepts helped create giant steps. Gotcha. I lived down the street from this guy, but I didn't know who he was other than that. He was assigned to live down the street and I used to go to the dry cleaners for him and he was ultra hip. Um, that, and he was an institution in Philadelphia mm -hmm. as an individual. Yeah. He passed away and to a certain extent, his legacy sort of dissipated with him. So I think that's where the the, the cheat is. Um, there, the flip side of that would be there's a university or there's a church or there's a you know that has longevity and resources that continues to this day. Like or another story we talked about Nina Simone earlier. Nina Simone comes to Philadelphia. She wants to get into Curtis School of Music. Right, right. They don't let her in. Yeah. Curtis School of Music is still open. Yeah, absolutely. Nina Simone transforms herself into someone else, influences a whole generation, has been dead for quite a few years, yeah. and now has influenced a whole new generation right, of right. people. Um, so to me, I think that's what a cheat is, that we don't have the institutional resources. And sometimes I would even say that when I think of black institutions, I, 
in my experience, there I've come across a number of black institutions that aren't particularly interested in actually engaging black people. Yeah, yeah, true. You know, um, so it's sort of like you're on your own. If you, that's mm-hmm. part of the reason mm-hmm. why I said I survived. Right. I, my my key is survival as opposed to thriving and what have you, because you're sort of functioning in this hinterland, this uh, desert landscape. And you're lucky if you get some shade gotcha. and some water, you know. Well, if I don't know how helpful this will be for you, but, you know, from my vantage point, you seem to be someone who, you know, who is thriving. You know, you, you seem happy. You, uh, you know, you almost always have a smile on your face. You have <laughs> you have a very beautiful family, you know, uh, they, you know, they're, they're inside and they're outside, you know, it, it's all coming together. So I don't know what it's like for you, like actually inside your mind, maybe you're going crazy. But from from my 3000 feet away distant view I'm like oh Homer he's got it he's got the big house you know he's you know he's doing well so that's how it looks to me but that's the that's the trick yeah it's it's, it's a very good <laughs> trick if you're doing now you see him mirrors, now you don't yeah, you know it's, it's impressive well so like let's uh let's kind of you know go through the journey um yeah I'm very curious as to your or, your origin story which I I'm realizing I don't really know that much. Like we've known each other for a while, but like, you know, I mean, we just have conversations, so I'm never like interviewing you. So, so kind of, kind of walk me through. So you, you were born in Philadelphia. Is that correct? I'm from North Philly. From North Philly. Um, So where in North Philly did you grow up? I grew up on Gratz uh, Street and York Street. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, Uh, and you can either specifically tell us the year that you were born or you can tell us the general time. Oh, Whatever you're 1957. 1957. Okay. All right. So you're you're born. It's it's the uh, Eisenhower administration. Sputnik. Sputnik. The whole, the, the, the Soviets Civil are coming rights to get us. movement. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, yeah. So I feel like that like that's an interesting time because, you know, you're a little kid during like the Kennedy Johnson sort of like, what is shown as far as like history, like this is really when it's going down. You know, Malcolm's killed in 65, King is killed in 68, Voting Rights Act, Civil Rights Act, like that's all 64, 65. So you're a kid, you're like aware of this. Like, so, um, well, first, just what, what was your family life like? You know, what did the parents do? Do you have siblings? Like what, what was life like in North Philly at that point? I'm the youngest of <clears throat> three girls and um, another guy. Okay. So five of us. Um, my the oldest, my stepsister, um, wasn't raised with us. Okay. Um, I, being the, the youngest, I um, sort of inherited <clears throat> things from them. My sister, Madeline, was connected with uh, people from the Black Panther Party, okay. um, a number of different organizations. In fact, during the, the, black, uh, the, expo, the black expo that happened here in the late 60s, the very first Oh, there, there was one. Yeah, here. that I, happened. Is sixty eight, sixty nine? Okay, because I'm, I rem, maybe I know 70. of the there was like the Black Political Convention in Gary, Indiana, in the like right. late sixties, early seventies. That's like right. the only one I really know about. Okay, and so she 
had an after affair. She used to own a daishiki shop on Broad mm. and South. And an after affair happened at her space. And I remember meeting all these people. I don't even know who was there. Okay. But it was a lot of people. And there. how old were you at the time? Uh, that, I must have been like 10. Okay. All right. So so there, there was enough of this progression, civil rights activism that was like you were literally encountering. Oh, it, absolutely. You know, My sister was the sister. first person. I ever saw wear an afro, and gotcha. this had to be like 1965. Wow! Yeah, yeah. And I saw her get spit on, mm, mm-hmm. yelled at, yeah. people throwing things at her because yeah. she had. And this is a black people. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was like mind blowing. Um, and, and another thing I, I remember from that period, you mentioned Kennedy, um, that I was bused to school. Mm-hmm. Um, part of that integration drama of the early 60s and we were sent to a school in South Philly so every day we'd be on the bus yeah. for about an hour and uh, one day I'm coming home and I'm talking to my friend we're walking down the street and this woman opens the door she starts crying and screaming and then a few doors down another person's just I can't believe it I can't believe it and people are in the street screaming and making noise and John F. Kennedy had been shot Wow! and it was like it was personal for and this is North Philly yeah. and folks are just in the street like it is unbelievable and when I finally got home my mom told me what officially happened but it blew my mind just seeing people crying in the street and uh, I don't know how many days later that was but when they did the um the funeral, um, the the uh, body was taken on a train going down to D.C. Mm-hmm. from Boston, I guess. Okay, yeah. And um, we stood on the overpass of a bridge to wait to see the train, which wow. was covered yeah. in a, this huge American flag yeah. or whatever. And there were at least at at least five thousand people on that train at that that uh, bridge. Yeah. But this is all the way down the Amtrak corridor. Yeah. People were basically saying goodbye to the president. That was crazy. I've never seen any kind of patriotic anything near that since. It was like. Um, I can't say it was a fairy tale. We lived in a fairy tale sensibility, uh, but people believed in something. Sure, sure. And they felt uh, an attachment to that thing. Right. Um, so, and I think that that belief drove both the civil rights movement and the black power movement people that I saw too. I can't say that drives people now. Because I don't think people believe too much of anything. Um, but I think people believed in fairness, what was right, what was wrong. And they were willing to put their stuff on the line for what they believed was right and wrong. Yeah. And I can't... I, there's a difference. There's right. a difference yeah, in definitely. our current situation. Definitely. So we li- we lived in this... I can't say it was an idyllic world. So we had drama. Sure. You know, lots of drama. But... Um, that was the environment that I grew up in. Uh, my sister connected me to all of these artists when I was a young person. 
My mom made um, quilts and various kinds of woodcuts and stuff herself. So uh, it wasn't unusual or uh, unsupported for me to create things. Okay. Okay. So that's how I, you know, really got this opportunity in my home. Yeah. Because it was encouraged. So the what was the what was the neighborhood like? So was it one in terms of racially? Like was it all black at this point? Oh, there's some two thousand percent black. Okay, and it like any white holdovers, like any old Irish folk, like one or two, or were they all gone by the time you came? Well, I went to school with uh, both in elementary school, middle school, and high school with people who were white folks who were still in the neighborhood. They were a handful of people. Mm White folks who still lived in the neighborhood. Yeah, gotcha. Definitely. It's uh, one dude I remember. Uh, can't think of his name. He used to play basketball with us sometimes. And his whole social network, everything about him, this is a black dude. Yeah, yeah. It's a black dude. Yeah. That's how everybody dealt with him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Gotcha. Him and his family. Yeah. And he married a sister. And I don't know, they... I haven't seen him. Sure. And I don't, yeah. We're not friends, but yeah, he was just some dude, some black dude that mm-hmm. just looked like a white mm-hmm. dude. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. One of my, <laughs> one of my good friends, uh, Sigmund, he grew up in an all black section of Dallas. He's actually from the same area of Dallas, uh, that like the DOC is from mm-hmm. and Erica Badu, like he and Erica Badu went to the same high school, like at different times, but there was literally one white family in his neighborhood. And like, you know, they, all their friends were black. So like this guy, like, you know, only dated black women, like is married to a black woman now. Like, you know, the, the vocal mannerisms, the style of dress. It's like, yeah, like, you know, no different from other, any black dudes in that section of Dallas. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah, I've, you know, having been in Philly myself for like 22 years, like every now and then, like I even remember I was with a friend at, um, what's that bar at Barber's hall over at like broad and wherever. And there was like some white guy in there, bright red hair with like a very long beard and like the way he was talking i was like yeah like this this dude grew up around here and yeah just like the things he was referencing the colloquialisms he used i was like yeah yeah he's yeah he probably grew up at like 17th and jefferson or something uh so as far as the economic makeup of your neighborhood is it like super mixed is it middle class upper class working class is it all working class is it all middle class is it like what's that when i grew up uh broke Almost broke, or just after broke. Okay, so th- those like, are the three levels. That's that's the economic diversity, and that was blue collar, brown collar. Gotcha, gotcha. This is not um, destitute people because we're still talking about growing up. We're still talking about the Great Migration. People are still coming from the South to Philadelphia to get jobs. Now the irony is, the time from the time of my birth. To the time I graduated from high school was a forward projection and a need for employees. But by the time I graduate from high school, what really starts to happen is the beginning of the Rust Belt. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you catch the train to New York from Philadelphia, from 30th Street Station, and you ride before you leave the city, you're actually going through the industrial guts of Philadelphia. And that used to be thriving. But with, as you know now, when you yeah. get on the train, it's all abandoned yeah. factories or torn down factories. And it's just, it's crazy. 
but that was the industrial guts of the city and uh, part of the reason why um, the Monopoly game is so connected to this region because of the train mm, lines. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know. Interesting. Um, and so what is... What is your, what are your parents doing for like their actual vocations? My father was for the first twenty years of their marriage, I think. My father was a uh, he installed wooden floor, hardwood floors. Oh, okay. Um, and then the, his he left that job and then became a federal employee, got better benefits and yeah. so on. He worked at the customs house okay. doing maintenance. Yeah. My mom was a homemaker. She started out as a domestic. And then after, by the time I was born, she was just a homemaker. Okay. And were your parents, did they grow up in the North or did they, were they born in oh, the no, South? They, they're they great migration okay. folks. My father's from South Carolina gotcha. and my mother's from Virginia. Okay. Okay. Um, and so you, you had mentioned a bit of, um, you know, your, your mom had some artistic endeavors right. that she was doing as well. And was this just like things that she was doing for fun or was she actually like making wares and then like selling them or was no, it just she was stuff just she was doing, doing stuff for fun. Okay. And, um, my mom, um, had, uh, some mental health issues. Okay. So she would as we will call them, have a nervous, nervous breakdown and would be in some kind of facility. And as part of that time that she was in the facility, they would do different kinds of art projects. And she would do that there. And then actually when she got out and was at home, she would do things in her free time. Okay. But she mostly tried to do um, art that was functional. So making quilts, sewing, doing embroidery, uh, uh, a little bit of knitting, things like that. That was something that gotcha. she was that she did a lot of, and then of course cooking. That's mm -hmm. a whole another art right. form. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, but that that was her thing. That was her thing. And so, how how old were you when you first really remember either feeling super enthusiastic about a piece of art, whether it's film, music? TV, like when was the first age when you remember sort of being like, oh, there's something magical about this? And also, how old were you when you first started to make something on your own, even if it's like, oh, you know, here's a here's a, a painting I made when I'm seven and it's just crayons or whatever. That's that's a that's a weird, tough, interesting question. Okay, yeah, let's 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 unpack that then. Yeah, because I think the first the first thing that I recognized that I can easily say that hit me um, was looking at Jack Kirby's comic book drawing. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Jack Kirby flipped everybody's world upside down. Um, I was, you know, re and it's funny because that Marvel Comics comes along during the time period that I'm growing up. Yeah, yeah. And some of the old heads in the neighborhood would have them. Maybe my brother might even have a comic book or whatever. Um, and comic books were important to me. Yeah. So uh, what to our what, little crew? Yeah, gotcha. What What were some of the 
the comic books that you remember reading then oh, that you man, were like I, really into? I read Iron Man. I read Captain America. I read the Fantastic Four. I read Thor. Um, and Jack Kirby's work stood out. It was just bonkers. Bonkers. To this day, Jack Kirby still turns my head upside down. He's just, he's amazing, amazing artist, amazing artist. And he created, you know, going back to the thing you talked about, science fiction, yeah. he created these worlds. So you look at those Thor drawings, it's mm -hmm. like he's really trying to illustrate what this Viking heaven mm -hmm. looks like. Mm -hmm. And it was mind-blowing, yeah. mind-blowing. Every time you look at his work, it's just, whoo so to this day, I'm like a still a Jack Kirby disciple. Gotcha. So so will. something I'm wondering about is, um, so for me, I was never really that into comic books growing up. Like I wasn't really. I read a few of the um the like the ones you get at the grocery store, right? Or um ones that were based on Nickelodeon cartoons. So like uh, I had a, I read Plastic Man and I read Count Duckula, but mm -hmm. I I don't think I knew that Spider-Man was actually in comic books. I knew the cartoons and I knew some of the live action movies that they that they made. So for me, I didn't really know anything about the whole Marvel DC world until they really started doing the, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe and doing Iron Man and doing Thor and doing all of that. So of course, if you know, if you're coming at it from my vantage point, you hear Stan Lee, Stan Lee, Stan Lee, Stan Lee. Now I'm a bit of a nerd, so I like to read about stuff. So I've heard Jack Kirby's name before, and but you know, it's always sort of like, oh well, you know, Stan Lee is really the god of the Marvel universe, and then these other people did things, and they were significant as well. So for you, um, like, is Jack Kirby like the unsung hero? Like, is he sort of like you know, because a lot of people would say. Bob Marley was the pretty face of the Whalers, but Peter Tosh was right. really the guy. A lot of people will say John Lennon was the most like dynamic of the Beatles, and he's married to Yoko Ono, and it's super interesting. But a lot of people are like, Paul actually wrote the best songs. Paul's the one who came up with the concept for Sgt. Pepper and Magical Mystery Tour. So the veneration of John Lennon is misplaced because Paul is really the guy that keeps the band together through the late 60s. Is it is it similar, at least in your yeah, mind, with It's Jack funny Kirby? because you, you mentioned Bob Marley and the Whalers, yeah. but you know, Bunny Whaler. <laughs> he's yeah, the real, yeah. he's the right. boss. Yeah. And we don't even know who he is yeah. after a certain yeah. point. Um, uh, what we have heard and read is, well, one, Jack Kirby died poor. Mm-hmm. Jack Kirby created probably 50% or 60% of the characters and many of the storylines of the characters that became Marvel comic books. They, he and Stan Lee were together before there was such a thing as Marvel comic right. books working together. Yeah. Um, and most of the Jack Kirby fans feel like Jack got jerked. Mm -hmm. And So like, why do you think that is I mean, is it just that Stan Lee was just more sort of exporting of his personal narrative, or did the zeitgeist just catch him, or is it one of those unknowns of the world? I think because Stan Lee's name came first as producer and publisher, right? I think that's that's what it is. Yeah. But if you go back and look, I mean, 
the four uh, allure is Jack Kirby. The Fantastic Four is Jack Kirby. Uh, Black Panther, Mm -hmm. he created Black Panther. Um, So, yeah, it's it's interesting. But that's one of those things for all the artists out there. Get your paperwork right. right. (laughs) Get your paperwork right. Because Jack definitely didn't have his paperwork right. And he doesn't, he didn't get any residuals or anything from that. And Stan Lee did. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and one of, one of the things I find really interesting is, um, you know, like, especially for me, like, you know, like I'm saying where as someone who really is not connected to the actual comic book world of Marvel or DC and really only connected through the movies, Jack Kirby's name is never overtly mentioned. And and at this point, Stan Lee, Marvel Comics, the MCU, it's so ubiquitous and it's so self-sustaining and it feeds off of itself, one to the degree of Stan Lee, you know, had his cameos in all of the, you know, the movies. He's mentioned on the Big Bang Theory. It's like, I, I'm sure even if you said to my mom um, or like to my dad, who doesn't hasn't seen any of the Marvel movies, doesn't has probably never read a comic book in his life. If you asked him who is Stan Lee, he'd be like, oh, the comic book guy. Or, or, or he would say, oh, the comic book guy who was on the Big Bang Theory. Shel- you know, Sheldon went to his house. Right. And if you said Jack Kirby, he'd be like, I, I, I have no idea who you're talking about. So I think that's super interesting because you just see that in so much art all the time all the time and it and i've usually found that the people who get really well known are not necessarily the best artistically or the most innovative and you know i mean stanley might be the, like the greatest comic book writer at, like i don't know but mm-hmm. i you know i definitely do know that that like public cons- like public knowledge is not really related to the artistic merit. It's something else, which is its own art form that I think some people are very good at cultivating. And some people can make very great work and do the public persona. You know, Kanye, like really up until maybe like 2009 was very good at being like, oh, here's this amazing piece of art and I'm going to be on every news channel ever doing everything. Um, so something I'm, I'm very curious about is so when you're a kid and you're reading these comics and, you know, and this is part of the reason that I wanted to take this particular lens with this particular podcast is so me 2019 in the era that we're in and the Homer Jackson that I know, I find it very like my mind is kind of ripping in half or like <laughs> I'm trying to imagine you as a little kid reading Captain America, which is so centered on American nationalism and American exceptionalism. Thor, which is, I mean, it's like literally the whitest thing ever. It's it's the Nordic European dreamland. Um, but, you know, it's having a massive influence on you. So, so when you're, so I'm curious, what's your thoughts about that as an adult? Just sort of like looking back on it. I'm just well, curious. Well, I mean, the thing that, that that's... Uh important to recognize is that you know um during my life thus far we've gone from being colored people to negroes to black 
to Afro-Americans to African-Americans. There's a whole lot of, a lot of something. Yes, definitely. Um, and that uh, we were patriotic to uh, fault. And our blackness, when we became black, black helped us to see that and embrace all of the evil, the dark, the the, the nothingness that was being thrown on us mm. and to accept that. Mm-hmm. And so f- for me, the thing about embracing that aspect about my blackness is I'm not, I don't have to be, I don't have to do any extra work to have, uh, to have an anti-Trump kind of thing. Sure. Cause my natural instinct, once I arrived at black, once I, I listened to Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, um, and start asking basic questions was, Oh, you don't count in that world. Now you can either make a world of your own or you can go and fight to be able to get a place in that world. Mm-hmm. But you can't stand here. Right. You can't stand here in nothing. You got to make that nothing into something. And I think that, uh, uh, I know, I remember in high school, I was talking about this the other day, in high school, in junior high school, like the concept of, and, and it's funny, that, that, that thing of sounding white. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, for me and my group of friends growing up in the 70s, for us, the idea of sounding white meant to sound, to have disdain and disrespect. So it wasn't just the words, it was this attitude that goes with it. You know when somebody's looking down on you. Mm-hmm. I mean, we black folks in America, black folks have been cleaning up you know, while people cleaning up and feeding people while they're sitting there talking about them yeah. for 200 years, easy. So it's like, you know what the deal is when you hear it and see it. And so I think folks got it all confused when they were, they, they were thinking we were talking about people's accent and acumen relative to where they grew up. And every, you know, a black person from, Mississippi is going to sound different from a black person from Roxbury yep. or from Queens. That's real. But this, how you speak to somebody and the level of respect or disrespect you give to somebody, that's what that means when you're talking about sounding white. When a black person speaks to a black person like they don't know they're a black person. Mm-hmm. That's what that really yeah. is about. Yeah. And for us, that to, to sound intelligent is to sound like Malcolm, to sound like Martin Luther King. Right. To sound like so many of these other people, the radio people that we knew during the 70s and so on. They were people who were asking questions and knew something. That's what we, that's where, so to this day, I didn't feel like I had to change the affect of, of my my voice uh, or my vocabulary to have anything important to say. Um, because I heard Malcolm. I heard Martin Luther King, their recordings and so on, and Baraka and so many other people. That meant a lot to us, you know, then. And then as time goes on, by the time we get to the 80s, there's a whole different 
it's a different thing. But for some of us, those things still held tight. So that was something that, that drove me, this idea that I could, I can get an education, I could sound like I had some intelligence, but that I didn't have to change the fact that I was from North Philadelphia. Right, right. Or that I knew I knew slang. Um, or that I didn't necessarily have to have the best vocabulary. I had to have a functional vocabulary. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that was, you know, and for me as a visual artist, even when I write, I'm still visual. Yeah. So vocabulary wasn't as important to me as making pictures. Right. And right. I, even when I speak now, I try to speak in pictures to mm-hmm, a certain mm-hmm, extent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, so th- that's something I definitely want to I- explore a little bit farther. So we, you know, we've talked a, a bit about your, you know, you're a kid. Some of the experiences that you've had as you're moving into teenage, young adult years. What's really what is the the artistic progression that you're taking like is does the because like for you know for me i don't even knew know if i knew that like people actually went to art college like i didn't like i you know i saw directors and i saw musicians but i kind of didn't know that they made money from that because (laughs) everyone i grew up with was mostly white collar professionals my dad worked in corporate finance my mom was a bank teller and then she was a travel agent so artists were, I saw people on MTV and I saw people in movies, but they weren't even like real to me. It was like, oh, they, they're, they're the same as space aliens. So what's your artistic progression? Um, it, I want to mention something just before we get there was mentors. Mm. I had a number of mentors that I met. Um, and I did an article about mentors with a, uh, a young woman who probably is 40 now. And it, the difference between our experiences and our interests was so different. Her mentoring thing was wrapped around finding someone who works in the field that you want to get into and tapping onto them to get what you need. Yeah. My thing with mentoring was finding adults who had experiences and knowledge who could help me understand the landscape. We're talking of just like the world as a whole. The world landscape. Um, One of my mentors was a minister who was retired at the time when I met him. Uh, He was, he used to tell me about his first, while he was in school, he worked in Atlantic City as a porter for a long time. And how he would save his money and uh, prepare for for his life ambition to be a minister. Um, And he was a really important person uh, in terms of helping me define some things about myself. Another mentor I had was a guy who was mentored by my sister. Mm. And he uh, was a Muslim. And uh, when he found out that she was my sister... He was like, you're with me. Yeah. And he taught me about cooking. He taught me about a lot about the music. He was a sculptor. He had been to Saudi Arabia to Mecca like five times mm. and had met the prince mm. uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, from the, uh, uh, what is their last name? Faisal. Oh, yeah. The, the, yeah. the family. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was just this amazing dude that really helped me through a, a period about trying to decide what I wanted to do with myself. Um, 
and and to be fearless with it to be fearless with it um and that 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 was interesting too because i grew up with this in this community of people from the nation of islam people who were orthodox muslims people who were hebrew israelites people who were baptists seventh day adventists who were all progressive people about pushing forward the agenda of the black community mm, mm-hmm. and of being intelligent and gathering information and education and um that same kind of vibe doesn't necessarily exist between particularly those religious groups the right. religious issue is more central to anything else and right these folks all saw themselves as black folk working together and 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 so is it a case of you know the 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 primary identity is is black and the primary sort of like focus is progression of black people and then the all of the other things that like the kind of personal or religious or communal I, communal identities feed the support of that you know so so the the islam whatever strain it is is a you know is a thing that they definitely like believe and it's also a conduit to moving black people forward it's not necessarily seventh day adventist above all else but it's like black people first and foremost this is how i represent black people this is the thing i'm sharing see i i think that's very cool that's i mean that's one of the things that i think to a certain degree exists a little bit in this part of east germantown i mean it's one of the reasons that naomi and i really wanted to be here was to really be around this really diverse array of black people who are representing in their in their own particular ways and sometimes those ways like one group's way actually at least rhetorically contradicts another group but it's like but it's all working towards the same thing and i think it's also super super healthy to actually say like well how do i reconcile these two competing ideologies that might go in two different directions but they they actually really want the same thing at its core i i think the person that can internalize that and wrestle with that and find some type of reconciliation is very well suited to succeed in this world especially as the world is constantly evolving and iter- and iterating I, I was at a meeting uh man this is maybe eight years ago was it maybe maybe it's eight years ago just before the philadelphia jazz project was created uh it was on lancaster avenue it was about i was working with the mural arts uh project and we were um working on creating a mural and we had a community meeting and the project that was uh was my idea was called Facing East, which was basically embracing the Islamic aspects of our community um, and not being afraid mm-hmm. to connect with your own cousins, uncles, brothers, neighbors, and yeah. so on. And so that was the central part of this project. And um, so we're having this discussion about the mural and it's like, uh, argument ensues and it's different factions like it within the room like uh everybody's backstory was more important than trying to get to the work done right so after like 15 minutes of listening to it i I just said you know i just wanted to 
add something. And I explained who I was and what I was about. And I talked to them about the fact that I came up with this idea because I grew up in this. And I start breaking it down. What? And, and it's like, these kind of things never happened because everybody was focused on what the goal was. Right. Yeah. They weren't trying to convert people to their thing. Mm-hmm. They weren't trying to use logic to argue someone else's point of view away. They were trying to figure out how can we get a light on the corner? Right. How can we get the police to 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 come to that park? How can we get together to clean that park? How can we get water plugs turned on so we can wash the street down? Like real basic we live together kind of stuff. Um, housekeeping. And so everybody like agreed and said they, you know, these are older people too. They already remembered that. And I, I thought that was so, so interesting. It's like, we know how to be civil. Mm-hmm. Whether we choose to do that, that's a whole nother sure, story. Sure. That's a whole nother yeah, story. Definitely. And so I, um, I don't know. I just find like being able to look back on things sometimes gives me um, uh, a perspective that I, I want to share at times, but also helps me to recognize that um, that we can work through things if we so desire. Yeah, definitely. You know? Definitely. So um, what year did you go to college? 1970, the end of 1975. Okay, and what what was your major? I went to the University of the Arts, it was called the Philadelphia College of Art then, and I was going to be a printmaker. Okay. Now, I started out, started out doing printmaking at 12 or 13 as part of an after-school program that was created, uh, that was part of an organization called Prints in Progress. Prince in Progress was uh, essentially a, a community education program of the Print Center, or Philographica, as it's called yeah. today. And two people, Ann Edmonds, who is at the Clef Club now, mm. and uh, she and her husband, Alan Edmonds, are part of Brandywine Workshop. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. And uh, Kippy Stroud, who would create the Fabric Workshop, were two people that I met. Um, I'm not sure who came to the church to talk about doing a program, but one of the elders of the church, Mary Madison, said, see this kid right here? In order for you to do your program, he's got to learn everything that you're doing. And you're going to pay him. Mm. So that became my job. Um, Because... Mary Madison saw the future and said, hey, he's going to learn. Interesting. So I learned everything about printmaking. (laughs) Nice, yeah. Because of that. Right. And met a whole bunch of people who would influence, again, my direction. Um, And, uh, yeah, it's funny thinking about that. That is what put me on this trajectory and I got accepted in the University of the Arts to do printmaking. And in fact, I didn't get into printmaking. You, you get in in your sophomore year into okay, your major. Yeah. And I didn't, uh, when I got in, it was funny because I, for a minute or so there, I had some drama 
because I had this background already. Mm -hmm. So it was like, well, you got to prove something. Like mm -hmm. nobody said that directly, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but that was definitely the the vibe that I experienced there. And plus I was the only black, no, it was two of us black students in the printmaking department yeah, yeah. who were new at that time. And the two people who were elder uh, upperclassmen who were printmakers were scared. That's <laughs> the best way of saying scared it. Scared of what or who or... I, I don't know what their experience was, but you know how you walk into a room and you can tell, like, uh-oh. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, there, there's, there's like a, a traumatic after effect in the atmosphere. And black sense. folks have, or in the past, I don't know what black folks, are, young black folks and how they do things, but back in the day, folk talked to folk. Mm, mm -hmm, the yeah. maintenance people used to tell me stuff yeah, yeah. at the school. Right. You know yeah, what I mean? So yeah, so so this is something I'm super curious about. So you know, so you're you're from Philly. You grow up in Philly, and you're going to school in Philly. Are you are you commuting from your parents' house in North Philly? Do you get an apartment? Are you living in? Center no, City? I'm actually catching a bus, okay. subway every day. And you're going down into Center City. Going to Center City. Uh, and this is you said like 78, 75, 75. Okay. Um. So what like what's the Center City vibe like at that point? As far as racially and culturally and the whole thing, you know, I mean, again, I got to Philly in 96, so, like, I'm sort of aware of the, like, it's a bit rough and tumble, uh, you know, a bit sketch, but, like, the, the trend lines are going up into the yuppification of Center City. You know, the, the oldest but Philly that's a I long know. time. Yeah. So, yeah. We're in 75, you're dealing with white flight like crazy. Yeah. By that point, it's like white folks are rolling up out of here. But here's, this is really important to, to say that for all of the white flight that's happened in Philadelphia, white folks still control Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Still yeah, absolutely. politically, economically, economically, what have you. Yeah. And they just move their operations, their base of operations to particular locations. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. Center City has always been, even when the buildings are empty. Right. You, nobody's that's not a, a headline like Center City's bankrupt empty and nobody's doing anything that never has been yeah. a headline period yeah so um uh I guess one of the best ways I could describe what the atmosphere was like was when uh at the University of the Arts they would always do orientation for freshmen and one of the things they would tell them is you're safe downtown you can go as far south as south street you can go far north as spring garden street you can go to 30th street and you can go to the river but anything beyond that and i, I laugh because right. that's where i lived mm -hmm. was yeah, beyond yeah. that absolutely Absolutely. And uh, yeah, I, I always found that to be hilarious. Well, and so like, and something else <coughs> that I'm wondering about is like Center City at the time. I mean, is it like, I mean, like, like, do you see, like, are you seeing yuppies? I mean, like, are you seeing business people? I mean, or is it? Oh yeah, the people are still there, but, but they have to negotiate that they have to share the sidewalk right. with regular Black folks. Yeah, I mean, and, so, and like, black folks yeah. were thick in Center yeah. City. Yeah. So, so yeah. So, like, that's the other thing I'm wondering about is, um, you know, again, 
the you know because I mean I have some like vague memories of so like I definitely remember seeing the prostitutes everywhere on Broad Street, Broad and Pine outside of our dorms. This is '96, so I definitely remember that. You know, I definitely remember seeing like a few porno theaters around. Mm-hmm. You know, I definitely remember seeing. Uh, you know, prostitutes who have like finished doing business like with people like and like walking up to us. You know, I mean, I was 17 when I got here. So it's like, oh, I'm just, like actually being solicited. I mean, so is it like, you know, and, I, and I've seen the movies of like New York of the 70s and the late 60s. And I've seen, you know, some like documentary footage. I mean, so is it sort of like the wild, wild west where it's like. No, it's not. Philly was wasn't that crazy. Okay. However. So it wasn't crazy like New York. Nothing is was as okay. crazy as sure, New sure. York. Yeah, and 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 in New York, you're talking about stretches right. of activity like that. I mean, Philadelphia, Thirteenth Street, the gayborhood, mm-hmm. was the spot where um, prostitution happened, gay and straight prostitution. Yeah. That's the the space where uh, Mumia Abu Jamal right. was arrested. Right. Yeah, because he um, he was arrested around like Thirteenth and Locust, something that's like right. that. That's right. Yeah, his yeah. car was parked. Right. Yeah, so and that's where drug activity was happening, uh, and so on. And was it and like what's the? I feel like you alluded to this when you're talking about you know uh, black folk being a, a I I think the word you used was a thick presence in Center City. Mm-hmm. Like like what's what what is the racial vibe? You know I you know I I'm asking you to broadly generalize, but like like what is is it like? crazy you know like our black folk feeling like you know very bold like we're gonna take over the city so get the fuck out of my way are white people like you can't take over center city is everyone kind of just together and happy and they all hate richard nixon like what's the no i think different people are doing different stuff i mean think about it we just talked about 13th and locust yeah but by the time you get to 13th and pine that's a that's still that's a gentrified neighborhood. It was still a gentrified neighborhood then. Mm, mm-hmm. um, or if you go over to Tenth and Locust or Ninth and Locust, that's that's a gentrified neighborhood. So, or if you go a few blocks up, you're into Chinatown. Yeah, you know. So yeah, it's it's weird. It's always been the same. Okay. It's always been the same. Um, okay. They just can charge more money for rent now gotcha, than gotcha. they could before. Gotcha. It was a different kind. It was a different kind of people even living in the center city spots. They weren't as wealthy mm-hmm. as the people now, but yeah. they were. You know, they were artists. They're people trying to do different things. Right. Right. Um, South Street had been during the '60s. South Street became the South Street that we know today uh, because artists went down. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, all right. So. So when you're studying printmaking in college, when like when you go, do you have a any idea of what you want your career to be, or is it just like I got to go to college, I got to get a degree, whatever happens afterwards is whatever? Like, do you remember what you're thinking when you actually, or even when you graduate? Like well, that, that reminded me of my mom. My mom said, well, "Why are you gonna go to go to school and be an artist? You gonna be broke?" I said, "Daddy's broke." Like, I can't follow my father's pathway as if that's, like, the golden the, the golden plan. You know what I mean? So I was like, I just got to figure out what it is. Mm-hmm. But I can't figure it out without some kind of education, some kind of skill, and some kind of experience. I need to 
to go through something to get there, you know. Uh, now, what's funny is some of my mentors, uh, particularly those who were in the art world, black artists who were in the art world, you know, they gave me some feedback. and whatever, But the one thing that I recognized from them was that they all benefited from the desperate need of institutions hiring black people. Okay. Like all of them who graduated in the early 70s got gigs. Gotcha, gotcha. So by the time we got there, uh, it's 1980, I'm getting ready to graduate. The, organ the institutions are like, we got our black dude. Okay, so 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 was it a thing of you you saw these mentors and and they're able to get connected to some type of institutions and they're able to get work, but those doors are closed. So 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 like what what was your thinking? Was it like oh okay, well there there is a viable employment path for me? I thought, and then I actually try to apply, and it's like oh no 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 we we got the four. No, black I, ne I never felt that way. Okay, I never felt that way. I knew that I needed a degree. And then I could do something with that. I could, if I was going to be a school teacher or something else, I could do that. But I knew I needed to get a degree. Um, and that. And, and this is this is just sort of like for overall life, happiness, job viability. Right. You Whatever I was going to do, you need a I degree. I have something. a degree. You need a degree. In I something. needed a degree. The percentage of people with degrees are smaller, which means that you're rarer, mm -hmm. which means that you have. A little bit more viability. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I knew that. Now, was there was there also any type of thinking of? And there's no and there's no vocational training. There's at school. Right. There's no counseling to say, oh, you take your degree and you go do this. What I learned at school was that that was all personal relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. That people who was so and so, this guy that I knew whose father was so and so, he got a job out of yeah. school. Yeah. And that my wife, she worked in graphic design. We saw that those people who graduated from the department who were cool with so-and-so, they got a job. It didn't have anything to do with talent or skills. They would say that. Right. But in reality, no, that's not true. Yeah, no. It's it's the personal relationship. It's, it's what all you, about yeah. relationships. And I had none. Yeah. Even though I had worked at these institutions sure. already. Yeah. I've worked at institutions. Yeah. I've been part of this stuff. But no, that didn't work for me. Yeah. And what ended up happening for me is I got opportunity after I grad finished grad school, I got opportunity to work in jail, mm. to do programs in jail. How did that come about? Um, Patricia Finio, uh, my mentor, uh, was looking for uh, teachers and she heard about me through Prince and Progress mm, mm -hmm. and I was in grad school and she asked me to come to do one session at prison to see if I was interested in doing this and the funny thing was like I walked in and um, somebody puts their hands over my eyes when I walked into the class in the mm. jail and said, guess who it is? And I was like, I don't know who it is. And I turned around, and it was somebody I actually knew from school. Um, a gentleman who had killed his wife, mm. who was my classmate. Whoa. Who he and I really got along before. Yeah. And now he's in jail for murder of his wife. And I knew his kids. Yeah. It was just, it, that was, yeah, that was a wild experience. Yeah. 
and he would end up becoming a really critical person in in my classes mm. and that I ended up knowing about eight people that I would teach I knew them from the neighborhood mm. interesting mm-hmm. yeah that's like I mean like where does your mind go like how does your mind comprehend that I I, I don't know if I could that might just com- completely shatter my well my a core. friend of mine told me uh my friend Rich, he told me, man, you are one of the coldest people I've ever seen in my life. And I was like, that's funny because you hang out with all these gangsters and mm-hmm. murderers. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and I'm the coldest and you're person. you're the coldest one. But I, my vibe is I'm here to get this done. I'm going to get this done. I'm just going to figure out how to deal with this. And I, as a teacher already having taught in different programs and being a Prince of Progress, I was teaching every day with kids, even as I'm learning myself. Yeah. The thing is that you you have to give part of yourself and you've got to remove part of yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that helped me a lot in, in prison because I, I mean, I'm working with murderers. There was uh, one guy in my class was the person who had, um, and I found that out later, had um, buried people in these abandoned buildings inside of the floors. Yeah, Whoa. yeah, you know yeah. it was crazy. Yeah, um, but I was able to get done what I was supposed right, to do, right. and I didn't have any particular judgment or concern about their cases. I never asked anybody about their cases. Mm-hmm. Um, I was here to create this, and I think we could do some beautiful stuff if you yeah. want, you know. And so, yeah, that's 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 how I, I managed to do it, and I. Uh, uh, one of the things that I uh, experienced, you know, is in this teaching, we did a lot of exhibits and performances we even did. And I did recordings in jail. I was yeah. there for 15 years doing so, these yeah, programs. Um, so uh, can, can you break down like the different categories of like, what are the various types of art that you're making? So it's like, so it's some like music recording is there is there visual? Is there written? Like like what's all the we were stuff doing you're, everything. You're doing everything. We were doing everything. Everything that I got interested in, I would bring it into the prisons. Okay, and and what were some of the things that you were you were interested in that you were bringing in? Well, I started out doing just paintings with these guys, and that was cool. But the more I thought about other things, like for me in my own work, one of the things that happened to me is after I did. While I was in graduate school, I decided, well, let me take a step back. When I was in undergraduate school, in the last year or two of undergraduate school, OSHA put out new rules about the chemicals that could be used in work environments. And in schools, they had a whole new set of things. So water-based silkscreen inks and other things were being presented. And... Now, I'm like 22. I started this at 12. And I'm like, I've been exposed to all kinds of chemicals. It's chemicals that are actually on the list that are outlawed, yeah. I was exposed yeah. to. And I said, I'm not using chemicals anymore. So I started changing my work. And in grad school, I had some problems because they were like, oh, you know, you've got to do printmaking. And I came up with some way of doing stuff that 
still included everything, but I moved away as far as I could from dealing with chemicals. So I got my degree. And one of the things that happened for me is that it was, it, it was a weird thing. I used to do postcards to my wife. Mm. We were still going together. Mm-hmm. And I would make these postcards. And the postcards became, they were essentially scenes from imaginary films. And so I would write the information about what the, the, the scene was on the back. And the descriptions of the scenes got so big that I started to create, started to write. Gotcha. And so I got this visual art thing and this writing thing that I'm, you know, messing with. And then I was still on the radio because I got on the radio as a, a graduate student. I started to take my writings and perform pieces in audio. And eventually I would start to do live performances and video performances and create installation art that was manipulating some of these same ideas and put it in place. Um, it was this evolution. I stopped doing prints and started creating other visual art. And then it became storytelling. And I was still creating visual art. Um, but what I started to recognize was that as an artist, I didn't want to just create work to go on my wall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I made this pack with myself and it's, there's two pieces to that story. I made this pack with myself. I won't create anything unless it has a place to go. Mm. Say that, say that again. Cause I, I want, I want the people to hear that and let I that, will like, not create another piece of art unless it has a, a place to go. And what does that specifically mean? So that meant for me, there needs to be an exhibit. There needs to be a sale. There needs to be some funds that's going to justify this effort. I didn't want to be a studio artist just painting in my studio, just amassing stuff. As a printmaker, you already have amassed stuff because we make multiple copies of everything that we do. So if I did five pieces, I may have 500 pieces of paper. So I was like, I can't do that anymore. I got to have a reason. The other thing that changed things for me is three pieces to this. First is not have, it, it, uh, uh, creating something, have to have a place for it. The second thing was I refused to be a student anymore. Uh, I went to see, I went to a concert to see Betty Carter. And I was on the radio so I could go for free. I, I had a comp ticket. But for whatever reason... And, and can you explain to people who Betty Carter is? Betty Carter is a lion of uh, bebop jazz as a vocalist. She was as proficient as Charlie Parker was with his horn on her voice. It When you saw her, you saw it all. She was a monster. A monster. And I went to a concert and she was completely out of it. I don't know if she was drunk. I don't know if she was high. I don't know if she was uninspired, if she was ill. I don't know what it was, but it was like one of the most uninspiring experiences I ever had. And that night I said, man, I I was actually painting before I came Mm, here. mm -hmm. And I came to come support Betty Carter, blah, blah, blah. And I said, you know what? I came here like as a student to learn. 
I'm not a student anymore. I started thinking about it. It was like all of my, the favorite people that I like, my mentors, they don't come to see my work. They're too busy doing their own work. So I'm a business person. Mm-hmm. I need to take care of business. Yeah. I don't need to spend any more time being someone's student. Right. So that stopped me from just going out and just, you know, oh, yeah, I need to go see somebody because they inspire me. No, focus, yeah. focus on your work. How, the, how old were you when you made this realization? About 25, maybe. That's, I, I think that's like a relatively young age. to it, At least in modern times, that's like being like a 15-year-old to, to really realize that. Yeah, I was, I was done. And then a couple of years later, the third part of this three-pronged concept came. And that was, as an artist, I am not your customer. Hmm. So one of the things that artists we do to each other is you come into my opening, mm-hmm. come to mm-hmm. my concert. I have a concert. I'm not your customer. Instead of us, and I, I had a friend of mine really got angry because I didn't come to one of her openings, and I talked about it to her, and said, you know, and I hadn't put it all together, but about six months later, I really pulled this whole philosophy together, and she was stunned, and she she said, you're right. And what I basically was saying is, if you want my feedback, you need to use my feedback before you make it public. Right, yeah. So invite me to your studio to look at your work. Mm -hmm. Instead of inviting me to your opening because it's too late. Yeah. And I'm not your customer. Right. Very few of my artist friends do I have their work in my house Mm -hmm. unless they've given it to me as a gift. Right. Or, or, and the same with me, if I gave mm-hmm. them, because we can't afford to pay for each other's yeah. work. Yeah. That's bottom line. One of yeah. my friends, a mentor, she's a MacArthur winner. Mm-hmm. Her, our pieces are selling for like eighty, ninety, hundred thousand dollars $100,000. How am I? <laughs> I don't sure, have sure. I barely got her posters. Yeah. I mean, and, and I also think that, I mean, there's just like a matter of like time of like, I, you know, I, you don't necessarily have time to go to like every single show for every friend that you do and something that I, think about um you know and i'm not necessarily making art now but i've come to this realization in the nonprofit world and in the fundraising world of like if you don't think that my organization is compelling enough for you to spend your money i'm actually fine fine with that i'm i'm not offended because there are certain things that you want to give your money to what i do might not be it I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. And in the world of art where like a lot of it's subjective and there's like limited time, eh, you know, I mean, you know, so you're doing your work with the Philadelphia Jazz Project. You and I have talked about jazz a lot. Jazz is not really a style of right. music that I really get down with. I appreciate That's it. Right. Like, you know, there I, I will probably go to things like once every three years. And a lot of that more so is to be like, oh, well, okay. I think there's going to be interesting people here or like, oh, the, the musician that they're, that they're spotlighting, I actually like that person's work enough to go see it. Or some of it's honestly like, oh, I want to see what Homer's doing in his element. But right. like, you know, I mean, but if you invited me to like 70 shows, I would maybe exactly. go to three. And it's my job, my job to create the thing. If you're only going to go out once a year, mm-hmm. how can I create the thing that interests you to go and see. That's my yeah. job. That's yeah. not your problem. Right. That's my problem. Yeah. And that's what we as artists need to deal with. Like, yeah. hmm, how do we how do we 
capture people's imagination and interest mm-hmm. with the little bit of time they have. Yeah. Yeah. You know. That- yeah. And and I I think that like you know that that is a very good skill to develop because I think one of the other things that happens is that if you're going to be relying on your friends to show up, you're becoming very complacent and like no, it's like give people a reason to come back aside from the emotional pull because that actually makes you better and even if your goal is to be like the hot person you need that opposition like you actually need it so again like you know very much to your point it's like it actually makes more sense to have someone show up in your studio and either like you know so if you want critique be like super honest of like give it to me don't do not spare my feelings. Tell me what you really think. If you want cheerleaders, it's like there. You know, I, I heard someone say that like at at some point in your life or at every point in your life, you need a mentor, you need a coach, you need a cheerleader, and you need a peer, and you should be that for someone. So like there are some people where it's like, you know, they're like, I'm thinking of exploring this. Do it. I believe in you. You you can do whatever you want. Now, hopefully they're also going to a coach who it's like, okay, well, Mike told me I can do anything I want. Here's my proposal. And then their coach says, yeah, you can do anything you want. This needs to get 10 billion times better to get there. So it's like, we're all working together. Without the unflinching support, you will not have the belief to even produce something that is horrible. But when it's horrible, then you, the coach makes it better. Then you have your peers to be like, all right, well, there's five of us were horrible together, but like Bob, like, oh, he actually got his piece put up here. So it's possible. He did it. I can do it. It's not completely unrealistic. And then you have someone behind you where it's like, oh, well, I've only been doing this for two months. You've only been doing it for two days. So I know a little bit more than you do. I can help pull you along. I was, I was where you were not that long ago. So, and I might literally be the only person who's going to give you the time of day because you're so new. The veterans aren't, aren't going to talk to you. So I owe it to you to, but yeah, no, I mean that whole thing, I, the world of art would be so much better if we stopped looking at it like a charity. How come you didn't come see my thing? It's like, it wasn't that good or I didn't like it or you didn't give me a compelling reason to and you being my friend is not a good enough reason. It's not. That's right. Yesterday I had a meeting with a young man who uh, I connected with through my wife and he's working on some DJ kind of stuff, whatever. And I just gave him some things, some feedback. And one of the things that he said was that um, the audience, the audience needs to learn to deal with this. And I said, no, the audience does not have to learn anything. It is your responsibility as a business person to convince the audience that this is something of interest to them. Mm-hmm. It's this is you're creating a pathway. Nobody has to walk that pathway. Yeah. That's on you. It's your job to convince them that yep. this is a worthy walk. Yeah. Otherwise they can do something else. And mm-hmm. I said to him, man. I said, you work hard every day, right? He says, yeah. I said, at 6 o'clock, you could just sit on your behind in your house. You really don't have to come back out. Right. I said, every time I work with artists, whatever discipline, my thing is, what do you have that will compel me to come out after 6? Yeah. 
Yeah. And I asked them, what is, and they'll just say, well, my work is about texture. That don't mean nothing to me. Right. How can, what is the strong message that mm-hmm. you're going to yeah. send to me that makes me say, hey, that's crazy. Yeah. I think I'm going to check that yeah. out. Yeah. And it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be deep. Right. It doesn't not have to be deep, but that's your job to figure out what that angle is mm-hmm. that's going to draw me. That's yeah. not my job. Absolutely. And I, I think that's, that's important for all artists or anybody who wants to do bring the public together. Um, on average, we do events, concerts where we got on average 100 to 200 people, right? But one of my most successful events, I had 1,300 people. Mm, mm-hmm. um, and we did that three times. Mm. Um yeah, I, I'm shocked that I could convince 1,300 people to come yeah, out. Yeah, you know, um, but that's it's really important. It's really important to deal with the fact that the audience doesn't have a responsibility to yeah. you. It's you that has the responsibility to the audience. Yeah, that's just fundamental. Absolutely. So, so uh, the, there's a there's a two part question I'm I want to explore. So one. Do you, um, you know, I mean this tongue in cheek, but like, do you, are you completely pissed off at like James Franco or Donald Glover slash Childish Gambino or Miranda July? So the reason why I'm asking this is that it, it, it feels like, like the through line for you is the art and the work that you find compelling. Like you, you do whatever it is that you find compelling. You're not necessarily pigeonholed by... I'm a this, I'm a that, I'm a this, which is kind of why I said, like, I, I, I don't even know how to describe you because there's not, like, <laughs> a particular tagline or word that describes what you do. But so, um, you know, but when I look at James Franco or Donald Glover, they, they kind of just, like, they do whatever they think is interesting. So it's like they write movie scripts, they make films, they do visual art, like, you know, they curate exhibits. You know, freaking James Franco was on guiding light or he was on some soap opera you know like he's he's written like a book of poetry i don't know if any of it is good but i mean enough people find it's good find it good enough for whatever reason that he's you know he's doing it and he taught like classes at ucla and then um you know there's a there's a a woman that i'm really into a lot her name is miranda july like she's someone that like only like super 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 hipsters know about but she's like if you just if you took James Franco and made her much less famous, like no disrespect, Miranda, if you're listening, you know, no disrespect. Not as many people know about you as know about James Franco. But she kind of does the same thing. She does theater. She does art installations. She writes novels. She writes short stories. She like does like performance art stuff in like shopping malls, and then like the fu- the money goes to like women's shelters. So it's just like she's a sort of like I'll do whatever the fuck I want. Right. I kind of feel like that's your thing um um so one i'm wondering if that's true two it like you know is that but that that also seems like that's your thing but it's a i don't know what the right word is it's you know it's it's more of like a gritty like utilitarian type thing Hmm. Am, am i on point with that you know because like you know you're you're not trying to necessarily 
have something produced on Broadway or on network TV, or maybe you are, I don't know. I would like this piece. To, <laughs> I'd like to yeah. do this project, this animation project for network TV, but that's another story. And what, what what's the animation project? I feel like we had talked about this before. It's you, based you, on you have a like 70 So people that are listening, Homer has like 80 ideas a year. He usually emails me about like four of them. So I'm sure that there are more that you're, that, you know, are in your mind that you haven't shared. But so what is this particular? It's a, a, a an animated little uh, animated series that I'd like to do about an avant-garde jazz band in Los Angeles in the 80s that merges science fiction, myth, and craziness. Mm, mm-hmm. Um uh, written by a writer by the name of Nathaniel Mackey, uh, who is an experimental poet, a brother that teaches at Duke, I believe, okay. now. And he and I have talked about it a little bit. I just got to raise money, make a sample, right. put together a decent proposal for a package. But the idea has been haunting me, and I've been reading and reading, and I have to pull together a study group. To His work is so dense. Yeah to uh, really get into but that would be something i would be interested in doing with for mainstream tv Mm. so so are are you in fact the philadelphia version of james franco or donald glover or miranda july i i think that um this era that we're living in now i think it's really about production and producers that the the particularly the digital technology has given the individual the skills and resources of an institution or corporation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So if you have enough money, and actually even if you don't have enough money, you could put a film on YouTube. Absolutely. And your film could be as as intense Mm -hmm. or as focused as anybody else's film. You could put a you can make your own comic book. Mm Mm-hmm. You can you can make anything. Yep. The issue of the means of distribution are still controlled by the few. Sure, but anybody can create now. Absolutely, and that's one of the things that I learned probably in the '90s that um, it doesn't like uh, it. It's almost like fences exist to separate one genre from another, or one discipline from another. But there are a whole bunch of hurdlers amongst us mm-hmm. who jump over whatever Absolutely. genre you want yep. because yep. you want to get something done. I'm, I'm working on a book, two books. One book is a narrative about my work and sort of like my life experience as told through the Philadelphia Jazz Project's lifetime. And then I'm working on a visual art book that's really an adult picture book about jazz, Philadelphia jazz stories. So Eric Battle, who's an illustrator mm-hmm. who does comic book work, yeah. he's the art director. And we've been working on this quietly for five years, yeah. pulling yeah. together stories and illustrations. And this fall, we should have it all printed and ready to go. Um, so for me, it's the idea is what's important. What am I trying to sell to people? And then what technique do I use to sell it to mm-hmm. them? Mm-hmm. So that mm-hmm. that's really what matters yeah. most. Um and is that like that operating principle is that something that you stumbled upon is that something that you consciously came to is it something that you had been doing all along and you and you just one day are like oh this is what i'm actually doing 
Now, I evolved to it. I remember um, this sister, this had to be 1977, and um, I was in college, and she was a filmmaking student. And she said to me, I'm going to Hollywood next year. I'm going to be a producer. And I said, I've heard people say producer. What is a producer? And she said, you make things happen. Mm. I said, what do you mean? She said, you make things happen. You put together the money. You put together the people. You find a place. You are in charge without being in charge. And so I was like, that's interesting. And years later, when I realized that what she said to me was what I would eventually be mm-hmm, doing. Mm-hmm. But I had, you know, you, you think about all the interests that you have uh, in any of us. You know, you like to cook. You like to do this. You like to do that. You find yourself at a certain point being needing to bring these multiple interests and skills together at some point. And uh, the producer in us figures out how to get people to work with us and how to do what we need to do. I, I've been fortunate and unfortunate. And in the sense of my unfortunateness, uh, I was always broke. So I had to learn how to do everything. Mm-hmm. So I know how to edit video. I know how to um, edit audio. I know how to do desktop design, desktop graphics design. I know how to use a camera, both a still and a video camera. And these are skills I've had for a long time. And so they all come in handy now that I I need these particular things. I can actually tell someone what I need and understand the language in which to tell them that. Um, And I also don't have to have top shelf skill to move something. I know enough and have had and done enough to be able to work with somebody who's really into it and let them go and do their thing within my thing. And they feel excited and happy that they're getting a chance to do their thing and that I'm not driving them crazy, trying to beat them down, not to have their, to contribute their work to this idea. Cause I'm really at this idea stage now as opposed to like I have to control every aspect right. of, of a thing that I do. It's it's important to me that the people I work with contribute. Uh, it's sort of like the the um, the stone soup. You know, mm-hmm. you got the bowl mm-hmm. and you got the stones or the pot and the stones and they bring in carrots and onions mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and next thing you know everybody's eating. Yeah. And you put the stones back in your pocket before somebody swallows them. Right, you know right. what I mean? Yeah. So I, I think that's important. That's been a big part of my work. And that's about collaboration. You also have to be able to let go enough so that people can do their thing. And you can't be so crazy. You know, I guess that's the best way of, of saying it. And you being a theater person, you understand the interdisciplinary nature of the work anyway. So you folks know what you're responsible for and let go those other parts of it because you just do your part. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that that's it. That's important for visual artists to learn how to do. It's very tough for visual artists to learn how to do because we work so siloed, you know, but it's critical. It's critical. And all of us need to be able to learn how to take criticism. Yeah. And uh, analysis, you know. So, yeah, that's that's 
another piece of my crazy story. Mm, no, I love it. I love it. Um, so this may seem like a super stupid, obvious question, but I'm I'm gonna ask it. Do you think your like soul would atrophy if you couldn't make art? I mean, if we were in a straight up like 1984, the government controls everything, and it's like it has been deemed Homer that you must—I don't know—you uh, uh, must be an accounts payable manager. <laughs> the you know the community needs you to be to to do financial spreadsheets. This is what you must do. I mean, do you just fucking lose your mind if that's the case? No, and this is funny. Because uh, for a period, I can't say when, is it late 80s, early 90s? But there was a period, or maybe it's after the night, it's maybe late 90s. I couldn't get anything. I had been doing things and getting opportunities, and then it was a period I couldn't get anything, nothing. And so one of the things that I did was I wrote proposals. My art became proposals of projects. Okay. So that's yeah. why I have 800 ideas gotcha. all the time. Yeah. I just, when it comes to me, mm-hmm. write it down, put it in some kind of language and form that's useful. And then later on, I go back to it. But the actual, the thing that's great about the proposals is that it creates the roadmap for what it is you say you want to sure. do. Sure, yeah, yeah. So you can hold yourself to it and you don't have to do everything. Right. It's like, oh, I'm just doing this. Which is a, it's a funny aside, but it's a thing I love about the contemporary filmmakers who are doing like life stories about people. Mm, mm-hmm. You know, like they they don't have to do the twenty five hour Spike Lee Malcolm X. Right. They'll make a, a ninety minute film about a weekend in mm-hmm. Malcolm X's yeah. life. Yeah. But previous to the nineties, a filmmaker was going to do a life story. They had to do the whole the damn whole life story. And it's great to now be able to take snapshots of, of reality and that snapshot being strong enough and powerful and compelling enough for us to enjoy. So I think that uh, I would be able to keep my brain working and may not be satisfied, but I would still be able to create even if it's just in my brain. Okay. Okay. All right. So... But you would, you, the, there would definitely have to be, like, content that you were generating, even if no one saw it. That's like, right. Like you would exactly. E- p- even if it's purely just self-preservation, and right. it's, it's the audience of one. I think a lot of artists do that. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's absolutely. A, and, and I, as a visual artist, um, I, even now, and I don't draw very much, but I'm always doodling. And what the doodling is, is it strengthens the dexterity of your gesticulation. Mm, mm-hmm. Like, I didn't know that as a young person, that I was constantly doodling. Yeah. But what it is, is strengthening the muscles of your fingers, your thumbs, to be able to draw uh, with the pressure yeah. and density that you need. Yeah. It's, it's funny, but you see yourself just doing little lines all the time. That's what I learned, but I never recognized that it's really calisthenics. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That it's yeah. really calisthenics. Yeah. And to a certain extent, all of us, whatever we work in, need to engage in the calisthenics of what we do to keep our thing tight. Oh, ab- absolutely. Uh, so, you know, one of the things that I've realized in owning this house and putting my personal mark on it is that, 
um, like I'll you know so like the pictures on the wall here like you know I mean th this is this is artistic calisthenics for me you know so clearly people that are listening you cannot see my house so you don't know what's <laughs> happening but I I basically have you know a variety of pictures of um, what I would call like slightly offbeat looking black folks you know so it's like a lot of pictures from the afropunk festivals uh i've got a picture of kanye west at his most hipster ish with like you know his squadron of hipster people uh i got a picture of um uh, i forget his name but he was in uh diggable planets and he's now in shabazz palaces but so the the like the reason why i you know chose these pictures very intentionally it's like you know one I'm someone who I've realized it's like, I don't really like going to art museums to view art. Like that's right. not really my thing. But when the museum was doing their inside out exhibits where it's like, Oh, well I can, I can actually be walking down main street in Maniunk and see a picture. I'm really into that. Mm -hmm. Even if I don't like the picture, it's like, I like it being taken to the people. Right. So that's my thing. Paying $20 and then like walking around. I feel like I'm in a, I'm in a cemetery and it's right. like, it, so that's not my thing. So I like art to like live with me. And so, you know, like these pictures that I chose one, I chose them just from a like straight up, like self affirmation standpoint of like, I, I need to see images of beautiful black people. However, people interpret that as to whether they are beautiful because they are happy. They're visually appealing. Cause like it just, it, it helps my psyche because mm -hmm. just with all of the media images that are presented of us that we're not even aware of, and I'm sure there's a massive backlog of just like crap in my mind, I, I can't do it. You mm -hmm. know, doing the type of work that I'm doing with people in the economic sphere that I'm working, it's like, it's fucking depressing. Mm -hmm. Like I can't have every black person I see be like living in poverty. Like it just, it warps my mind. So part of it is like functional of like, this is self-preservation right part of it is aesthetic because it's like i want nice pictures other than bare walls and then part of it it's like also aspirational of like okay like right. if i put these pictures it's a certain vibe but i also realized that it's a thing of well since i'm not necessarily generating a lot of art right now like this is my artistic outlet the way that i decorate the house is an artistic outlet the way that i'm putting my clothes together it's an artistic outlet like i'm being very intentional with the thing that i'm doing and I'd been doing that for years and I didn't realize what I was doing. And it's like, oh, like I'm 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 doing those calisthenics. Like, I mean, or like there was even a period where, you know, like when I was um preparing to marry Naomi and I would like I would cut out pictures of couples and I would I would make these like scrapbooks to myself. Like one of like, okay, well, like this is what I'm this is what it like it's working towards. Like I wanna be as happy as these people in these pictures. <laughs> You know, and and I was I was very intentional with the images that I was choosing because it's like I didn't want the like run of the mill thing. So it's yeah, and and it was again, it's like well, I'm not doing theater anymore. A lot of my job is making budget sheets and cash flow projections, which that does not get me out of bed in the morning. Like <laughs> this is what gets me out of bed in the morning. Right. So yeah, it's it's really yeah, it's it's developing that calisthenics. Um, uh, so something else I'm wondering, cause we probably only have like 10 minutes left. So there's a couple things I want to get into. So one, I definitely want you to like mention the, the projects that you're working on and how people can find your art. Because what part of what I want to do is actually showcase black artists and help get them known so that people can actually find you and support you. So if I don't actually talk about that, I've, you know, that's a massive opportunity that I've missed. <laughs> 
But to, you know, to bring things back um, full circle to where this conversation started, and you and I had talked about this a bit when we were emailing back and forth, um, the, you know, the choice for me in thinking about black artists talking specifically about white influences, it was, it was a very, it was a very intentional choice because I do agree that I think the black white conversation is limiting I think it's limiting if that's the only conversation mm-hmm. that's happening and if that's the only conversation that exists about race or, or whatever. I also personally think I get annoyed when people say, well, we should talk more about race in this country, but they only mean talking about white people being racist against black right. people. Because I'm like, well, that is a part of talking about race and a very important part, but that's not necessarily talking about race per se, mm-hmm. or it's... It, it, that is not the only thing in talking about race because another thing that is talking about race is even thinking about like, okay, so like, what does it mean to be an African immigrant living amongst native born black people in this country? Mm-hmm. Or talking about race could be like, yo, like, I, you know, I, I have a friend who his family is Indian. He grew up in Guyana mm-hmm. and he just became an American citizen. And I'm like, oh, well, that's super interesting because it's like you you are part, you know, he self-identifies as Indian. He's part of an Indian diaspora, um, but he grew up in a different country. His wife, who is also Indian, is from Texas, you know, and and we've and we've talked about like, oh, yeah, like, you know, they're they're still Indians in Uganda. Like, you know, and and actually I I learned all over Africa, all over Africa, all over Africa and, you know, in South America and, you know, other parts of the Caribbean. And one of the things that I think is super interesting is I just learned that, um, a lo- uh, you know, um, the Indian community or many people in the Indian community in Uganda have actually petitioned the government to be recognized as an official African tribe of Uganda. I'm oh, like, wow. I'm like, that's super interesting. Like, and, and that's an experience that we don't really hear about. So like all of that falls under race. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, like for me, um, you know, this particular lens and talking about race is super interesting for me because as you know, and some of the people who are now listening to the podcast know, you know, I, you know, I grew up in black and white suburbs where in California, I live really in an all black town, went to school with a lot of white people. Practically all of my friends were white mm-hmm. in Northern Virginia. It was really like an almost exclusively white community. So I was like the lone black kid amongst tons of white kids which didn't even feel weird for me because it was like well it's actually already what i know right so i was super comfortable with it but you know as i've you know explained to you and as some of the people listening to this might know you know i'm listening to led zeppelin i'm listening to the beatles i'm listening to pink floyd like that feels more authentically me than like listening to the fujis you know like and i like the fujis but it's like eh, i <laughs> um, no, like Pink Floyd is is more my thing. Right. So you know, so you know, like like that's the lens that I'm coming from, and I do think that the, you know, the the black white piece, just given our history in this country, is more weighted than because I I think it means something more if a if a black person and a black person from, um, you know, a stereotypically black area like so Chris Rock from Bed Stuy when he made Top Five the the directors that he was really referencing as like his muses were all white directors. Right. Uh, Woody Allen, um, Alexander Payne, who directed Sideways, Noah Baumbach. So I think that 
at least for me, sort of takes on more of a meaning of, oh, here's a black dude from Bed-Stuy who was born in South Carolina, and he's referencing white film directors. That has more of a social charge than, say, Barry Jenkins talking about um, uh, the Asian New Wave influencing Uh him. Because, I mean, we haven't had that tension Uh with, you know, Asian people massively i mean of course in certain communities like in la you know like there has been specifically with koreans but it's like it doesn't have the same for me it doesn't mean as much as chris rock being like no like alexander payne is the guy for me like woody allen is the guy so so that was a lot of the motivation in wanting to start the podcast and part of the the motivation was something that i realized was that when I would listen to interviews of black artists and they would mention white influences that they had, I would sort of like perk up a little bit and I realized that it was subconsciously a thing of like, oh, I'm not the only one. Right. Like, I, I'm not the only one. Mm-hmm. And and so one of the things, and I've, I've been looking back at over sort of like the last 10 years because there's been all of these different examples of like, you know, um, uh, a mutual friend of ours, Corey Delaney, when, when he was here visiting Mercer, Mercer is my nine-month-old son, so when he was here, like he was talking about how he was reading Hunter S. Thompson, and it was like shortly after he was talking, like he was talking about um, Thelonious Monk, and I remember sort of thinking like, yeah, like if we can go from Thelonious Monk to Hunter S. Thompson, that's the podcast right there. Right. And then one of the examples, um, you know, I mentioned this uh, in the email exchange that we had. You you were uh, one of the motivations as well because I remember you telling a story to i don't even know if you're saying it to me i just happened to be there but you were talking about how you were listening to npr and you heard an interview either with johnny cash or johnny cash's daughter oh, but roseanne cash yeah right. and and he had like made like a mixtape of like all the music that influenced him and then you did the same thing for your daughter asha right. so yeah and i feel like i heard you tell this story back in like 2013 maybe like it was a while ago mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so that, yeah, like that was kind of the, um, the, you know, the, the motivation. Um, and so like, you know, like that, that's why, like, you know, like that's really what I want to unpack because I feel like, you know, the, particularly when it's, when in America, you know, we as black folks in America are talking about like, you know, the, especially like the American white influences. It's such a crazy thing because it can, it can go off in any direction. Cause you know, an example that I give, um, is I personally don't really watch any more Quentin Tarantino movies. Like I, just, uh. I, I find, I find his movies too problematic. I couldn't see Django and I feel like I'm in the minority. Cause it's like, cause I feel like even Dick Gregory, watched Django and liked it and my you know my brother who I consider militant for lack of a better word was like yeah like I love Django I you know you like Django and I remember being like well you know if Homer watches Django like you know maybe I'll do it but I was like actually I just I can't do it for me personally because I just find his images too disturbing but what's weird for me is that like Tarantino was the guy for me like he was the whole reason I went to art school I wanted to be a filmmaker um, and so me sort of like doing my conscious uncoupling from his films has been a hard thing. And I, like I've grandfathered in everything up until Jackie Brown. So I'll watch Jackie Brown. I'll watch Reservoir Dogs. I'll always watch Pulp Fiction because I mean like that's the like Pulp Fiction to me is still I think one of the greatest films ever. And it's really like ushered in this whole, you know, independent rock and roll people that's fast true. talking like gritty um 
uh, thing. Um, so yeah, but yeah, you you had a reaction to everything. Well, that I was, was going to say that the uh, the Django thing, and all of Quentin Tarantino, um, it's uh, to me Quentin Tarantino is like a matinee Saturday afternoon, nineteen seventy three. Mm-hmm. At the Uptown Theater, mm. it's mm. like all of those what were called black exploitation yeah. films, and the the new uh, movies that uh, Clint Eastwood would make. Yeah, and all of that was being birthed out of the black exploitation films, and I, I just see him as just that, right? You know, um, and which I do as well. But I find that, personally, I find that very, um, I don't even know if disturbing is the right word, but like I don't know how well that sits with me. One, uh. one, one, because, you know, some of those films were really made by white directors and white producers, and it's like anyway. a copy of a copy of a copy. Um, and I'm also like, yeah, but like, like, Quentin, like, you're not black, and, and... And yeah, but like that's just my thing. But I also realize, you know, like as as I mentioned um, in the email that we had, Judd Apatow, who makes right. the films that I like, I relate to the most. All of his films have a cool black dude in it. Like he he is very indicative of the like. I live in the suburbs, and there were like two black dudes in my class, and they were cool, and they could dance well, and they like rap music, and like, and it's all affection. But like, you look at every Judd Apatow movie. There's literally almost always a scene with a black dude saying some funky black stuff. Craig Robinson and Knocked Up, um, Kevin Hart and Romany Malco and Forty Year Old Virgin, RZA in Funny People, LeBron James in Trainwreck, and it's just like, it's it's not coonishness and it's not buffoonery, but like it's it's not full bodied representation. But like I felt conflicted. And it's not about black people. Yeah, yeah. It's you're a prop. They are props. Yes. Yeah. I and I I think that like that's really the big. Yeah. It's it it's this comic prop. It's this like in, insert this funny thing here. Insert this fish out of water. It it's I mean, but the like the flip side is is that it's like yeah like I relate to those movies. I know the people like those those characters are the they are the adult versions of the people that I went to high school with. Right. You know, for better or worse. And I think maybe one of the things that, like, is disturbing is that it's like, yeah, but, like, you know, these friends of mine, I kind of know that's how, like, they view black people. Like, they view black people as props and side stories in their larger story. Exactly. Um, which is the issue, which is an issue for us in American culture. Yeah. Uh, I, I think uh, an example of that is the uh, Starbucks situation that happened here in Philly with mm. the young brothers mm-hmm. at the Starbucks. Yeah. And one of the things my wife and I were talking about is that apparently nobody told them, they didn't get, the young brothers didn't get the message that when you go into Starbucks, you're supposed to be spending money. The whole vibe of Starbucks is really about spending money, but you got to spend the money to understand that. And they apparently assumed, just thought that Starbucks was a place where you could just hang out and that they would give a mm. free space and free Wi-Fi. But in reality, people are spending, you're spending almost $10 a pop right. every time you walk up to the right. cash register. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Um, and that's how Starbucks is everywhere yeah. in this country. You're not giving away anything. No, no, not at all. Um, and we were just thinking about that, how, yeah, you just, you're not paying attention. You're not following the money. Right. And it, everything in this country is about the money. Yeah. It's all about the money. And so you, you, your little part is just on the periphery yeah. here. You're, you know, and by it, uh, that that white woman there who called the cops mm-hmm. on them felt like they were messing with, with the, the money. money. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That their presence would make somebody else feel less comfortable mm-hmm. in Starbucks. Yeah, that's what that was really about. Yeah, and all the rest is it does none of that changes. None of that's going to change because, and that's that alludes to what you were asking me about Center City then mm-hmm. and Center City now. It was the same. It's the same. You, even though we were dense in the street, we didn't have the right to be in certain places. Right. Still don't. Right. Still don't. And we don't have. That's the conversation about race that needs to happen. Is race and right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And privilege. Yeah. And just the ability to be somewhere and be comfortable and feel comfortable is foreign. Right. That's a fact. Yeah, that's a fact. And 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 working class people, or 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 in this country, non-working class people, people who don't have anything, they know that about themselves when they step into a different situation, you know. Um, and I know where I'm not wanted, you know. And I try, on the most part, my best to avoid that. My wife is more whatever than mm-hmm. I am about that. And I think what, women, yeah. women tend to be more like, you know, more social public and want to go to certain kind of places and so on. But on the most part, I'm, what, I'll tolerate. Yeah. And what, what, where, where are those spaces for you? If you're comfortable saying, if you're not, you know, I'm not trying well, it's to. Not specific, it's not specific locations. It's uh, if you're going to go out and eat, depending on what kind of place it is, mm-hmm. will determine how comfortable you feel. Yeah. You know, uh, and it sounds like 1975. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's no, 2019. Yeah, it's, yeah, like, it's are crazy. You kidding me? It's crazy. It's, it's, it doesn't make any sense. Um, but yeah, there's still places like, you know, you just feel like, hmm. Mm-hmm. And it could be something. It could be something like really stupid. Like it could be a Chinese point spot in Chinatown, or Vietnamese right. spot in Chinatown. Doesn't necessarily have to be an elite. Yeah. Whatever space yeah. is. Whatever's going on with those people in that particular place, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it, it's weird. Yeah, it's weird. So, uh, um, so th- there, there are a couple things I definitely, you know, I, I wanted to explore with a little bit of time we had because I, I feel like I definitely cut you off uh, uh, when you were talking about Tarantino and, and you know, and the like, you know, the sort of like uptown movie vibe, you know, because I wanted to do my rant and get my uh, you know, <laughs> cl- 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 clear my soul. So, um, so like, the, like this is something that I've like wondered about because I kind of feel like, since I am very much removed from that sort of like seventies, hundred twenty fifth Street, like you know, black exploitation, like movie, and like social culture, because because I feel like those movies are a manifestation of a particular culture, mm-hmm. um. You know that I honestly just like did not grow up in, mm-hmm. um, and it's and I don't even think it's even a matter of, 
um, like wokeness or like that because because like there there are certain things, there are certain elements of just using rap music and hip hop culture as an example because I think this is one of the most salient things that like people can relate to. So I I think it is unquestionable that there are a lot of problematic elements that are being pushed out under the moniker of hip-hop culture mm-hmm. and rap music right now. Mm-hmm. Whether they or not they are actually a part of the culture, many people will debate those things. Um, and simultaneously, there are a lot of people, um, and I hope I don't get in trouble for saying this, but you know you know my wife very well. Like My wife really like lives and breathes and dies hip-hop culture because that's really like who she is. There are certain things that like, you know, um, artists that she listens to or songs that she listens to that I'm like, ah, I think this is super problematic <laughs> uh-huh. as from an outsider. And I think I'm really now just like starting to understand, but it's like, but it's, it's also sort of like intertwined with who you are. So it's harder to disassociate yourself mm-hmm. from it because it's all wrapped up. Same reason for me. It's like, you know, I can make the distinction between Django and Pulp Fiction because Pulp Fiction came out when I was 15 or 16. Right. I saw the world in a different way. I didn't really know that much about like the Tarantino biography. So I'm just viewing it purely as a film in isolation. For me, Django is now part of this like larger sort of Tarantino mythology and just who I am sort of socially politically has changed. So it's like I you know that so I can't get into it. But like if Pulp Fiction came out right now. Like I would drop everything and watch it because it it's more than a movie. Okay. So I mean, so there's a point to all of this that I'm saying. So like for you, I mean, you know, and I feel like Tarantino is sort of just like a metaphor mm-hmm. for potentially explosive or problematic white artists mm-hmm. working with you know black folk to some degree. I mean, so like like. Um, Like for you, is it just sort of like, you know, it reminds like, you know, like seeing Django just sort of like, you know, it combines the the Sergio Leone Spaghetti Westerns and the Clint Eastwood High Plains Drifters, you know, and the, you know, Truck Turner. And, it, you know, it mm-hmm. kind of reminds you of your child. Like, is is that the thing? You know, like, like, like what, like what's, I what, guess what was me, the appeal for Django specifically with you? I, you know, I can't even remember. Yeah. I or was it just like, oh, it's, it's a movie that everyone's it's talking about. It's a movie that's out. Yeah. And I saw it, and and then and like I didn't even see all of the spaghetti westerns. This is one of the things I realized how many more spaghetti westerns there were than the ones I saw. Mm-hmm. And I did like with Sergio Leone. I, I liked his films. Um, but I was gonna say no, Sergio Leone. He's the yeah. filmmaker. Yeah. What's his name? Is the, the composer? Um, uh, I was gonna say though, with all of it. It's follow the money. Mm. The real issue with Quentin Tarantino is that Quentin Tarantino is considered a genius using a structure that was villainized um, when the focus was black people. So there was this big push to get rid of black exploitation films. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But the concepts behind what black uh, black exploitation films were became the underbelly of Hollywood film production. Can you give me some- that strat that so, filmmaking yeah. approach? Yeah, that filmmaking approach 
became some like the Godfather has some of the same techniques yeah, that they used in absolutely. making those films. But that was genius. They got paid. All those directors moved forward. All those actors mm-hmm. got paid. But black folk had an economic downturn yeah, yeah. in Hollywood at, by the late 70s. They got less and less opportunities. Mm-hmm. And it was because of the negative connotations of what they call black exploitation. Right. But that those ideas kept going. So part of the question is, and this is a, 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 a fundamental conflict. That is economics versus morals. Mm. Reality, the president informs us there are no morals. It's about making money. America is about making money. Black folks have been on this other thing and not making no money. Right, right. Bottom line. So it's, it, what, what makes it all crazy is that we're talking about this dude, Tarantino, who if... if the tra- if that trajectory of black exploitation had continued, we never know who he is mm-hmm. yeah. because it would be no need to have made what he even made. Right. Cause somebody else would have made those stories. There'd been enough stuff, not just black people, but all kinds of people yeah. would have been making that those kinds of films and it would have petered out. It wouldn't even been needed anymore. So th- that's my thing. It follow the money. And what happened is the money was pulled out of the hands of those black folks who, who were involved in that industry. The actors, Jim Brown was trying to make yeah, films. Yeah. Um, every football player mm-hmm. was trying to make yeah, films during yeah. that time period. All of a sudden, none of them can get any money right, to make films. Right. I mean, the, pro- the person that could make something was Richard Pryor, and you saw what happened with mm-hmm. that. He screwed that off. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then it all of that dissipates into a skinny skinny black dude from from Brooklyn named Spike Lee right, pops up right. with his own money. Right. Which is crazy. That's crazy. Spike comes along, what is that, 83, 84? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like 84. That's crazy. Yeah. That's like 10 years, 11 years. Nobody's really getting any resources to, to make anything. Just a handful of little black stories that get funded. When it's it's key with white flight, white people are leaving the cities. The theaters are in the cities. The mm-hmm. malls hadn't even been built yet. Yeah. So who, that's why those black exploitation films were so important because black people were still going to the movies mm-hmm. and the white people didn't even have malls to go to yeah. to see films. Like, that's economics. And like, none of us were like, even like, oh, yeah. Nobody even thought about that. Um, so here we are today, like when we talk about hip hop, you got, for me, it's two things. One, let's follow the money. What's happening with hip hop is hip hop is a dead art form. It is a zombie. But in following the money, you got a handful of black people who are continuing to be paid to prop that dead body up. Think about this. The heyday of Motown music was from like, say, 63 to 73. Let's just say that. It's 10 years. Hip-hop has been on the radio, let's just say, since the 90s. Yeah. That's 20-something years. What the hell? That's No black art form has had the economic support that hip-hop has had. Right. Ever. 
ever. So it's about keeping a dead body alive so that some people make some money. That's really because a natural, the natural thing would have happened in the black community is another form would have come on and been popular. And, yeah, replaced it. But they've been trying to cut every under other form out at the kneecaps so that it can't affect their money because those people want to stay in place because mm-hmm. when a new form comes new people come up right. and represent that so that's what's been happening to us so how so how do we how do we subvert that like that's that that's one of the things that i'm well the I'm key enemy out. for all of this for all of us is three letters p-o-p pop Pop is fucked. Black people, when I was growing up, we weren't pop. We didn't even have anything to do with pop other than those few things that came our way, like comic books. But comic books were underground even then, Mm -hmm. too. So we were never engaged in what was popular in America. Now we feel like we are, but we're really not. We're really not. And popular is also easily accessible. Black folk need to start dealing with the fact that uh, if we really want to learn about ourselves, we need to go underground because the real us cannot exist above ground. And that to me is a, is a, a hip hop manifestation of keeping it real. Don't keep it real. Keep it locked. Black folks in the past, be yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir, but they were taking care of their business at home. Right. They don't need to know your business. Nobody needs to know your business. You need to know your business. I, I think that's that's one of the key elements. Like, do your thing underground. So does in, in terms of teaching, in right. terms of knowledge, you know, do your thing underground. The idea that many people actually believe Wakanda is a real place is fucked up. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's fucked up that they don't know that much about the real continent. You got your damn phone. You could look at the continent and see what's there. But that's both for aspiration and lack of information. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? And so that, that's that pop thing again. It's so, like we take what's... It's, it's like low-hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. Pop culture is low-hanging fruit. And black culture has never really been low hanging. Right. You had to climb up in the tree to find it. You know, we were just fortunate that we lived in Philadelphia and we had radio stations where the DJs were about to trying to inform you. Um, but they don't even exist anymore. The DJs are just some people. Right. So, so, so when you, uh, I just want to make sure I'm, I'm understanding you correctly. So, um, so when you talk about, Going underground, you know, you know, aside from the, you know, the educational component. I mean, is it like, I mean, is it literally, you know, conscious separation from Def Jam and like, you know, like, you know, making our own labels, like, like not. I I think so. You know, I think so. Isn't that a punk aesthetic? Oh, absolutely. And they did very damn well. Well, See, and see, and it's, you know, and it's, it's funny that, you know, that you say that because one of the things that like has always, that has been talked about a lot in, you know, the, like the black punk world is the whole idea that what attracts a lot of black people to punk and what, 
attracted me to one of the things that attracted me to punk and one of the things that transitioned me from like punk into nonprofit work is it's the DIY concept, do it Mm -hmm. yourself. And, um, so like for instance, one of the, the bands that was super influential for me or an artist in the punk world that was super influential, not really because of the work, the content that he created, but like his whole philosophy. It's this guy, Ian Mackay, who was, um, he had a band called Minor Threat in the 70s, and then he had a band called Fugazi. They oh, were, yeah. yeah, and they were part of the DC punk scene, which mm-hmm. is really considered the like, the more um, cerebral, like philosophical, socially minded punk, because New York punk is considered like buff dudes and, mm-hmm. you know, I'm gonna kick mm-hmm. your ass. But, Ian Mackay is the person who is like credited with creating Straight Edge because he had a song called I Got the Straight Edge. He had a song called Out of Step. Um, you know, so, but he started Discord Records because it was like, we're going to have our own record label. Don't suck up to the A&R person. It's going to have punk aesthetics. And yeah, like we want to turn a profit so that artists can can live and 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 live well, whatever that looks like. They don't have to be on public assistance. They have their artistic integrity, but it's not money above all else, you know, above all else. And, you know, and, um, and Ian Mackay in particular and Discord and a lot of the people in that world have really been about like, you know, the, the mainstream world, we're always going to be like, uh, a prop or like a certain thing to the mainstream world. So we actually don't try to get their affection. We don't. We operate in our own ecosystem with our own ethics and our own code of values and our own internal economy so that if you actually want to have a, you know, if you want to make an album and you don't want to have to do everything, like you actually want to have engineers who know what they're doing, audition to work at Discord because you are a part of the tribe. Don't go to Capital or polygram or atlantic because once this punk thing isn't a thing anymore they're gonna fucking discard you which has happened a lot and and punk has been turned into like this punchline where it's like mohawks and and it's like it's not really it's not about mohawks it's about what the mohawk represents you know um yeah and it's one of the things that like when when people are like how can you be black and into punk it's like dude like there's so many parallels and and i think like you know applicable models of like oh like this is what it can actually look like to you know to do conscious separation to actually have an you know an independent ecosystem and like yeah so yeah it's funny because my um i got saw that when i was in college my girlfriend's roommate was Nancy Spongin's sister. Mm, wow. Yeah. Wow. When I was in so, uh, sophomore, junior year, folk went to London and came back during the summer and mm-hmm. came back with um, bobby pins in yeah. their nose. Like, this is the dawning of punk. Yeah. Um, and I, I listened to, I, I would end up listening to Pill. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what's uh, what is their name? Um, my brain is gone. Uh, they did the Sandinista joint. Oh, um, the Clash. The Clash. Mm-hmm. 
the synthesis of that that punk stuff with the uh, Jamaican yeah. music of mm-hmm. uh, uh, early reggae and ska, um, the birth of new new wave yeah. in New York mm-hmm. is happening at the same time. The black avant garde funk groups merging with punk groups. Mm-hmm merging with dead disco groups, yeah. all of that was happening in New York in the early uh, early 80s. And um, that and the downtown scene of New York with the avant-garde players who are now mainstream kind of museum dudes, but they were all outsiders. But that punk scene gave people the freedom. It's okay, you could do your thing yeah. here. Yeah. Um, and they all invaded different art institutions mm-hmm. and so on and and hip-hop is given a spot through that yeah. actually yeah um so it's funny to me because that the, the aesthetic that they had about doing it yourself owning it yourself mm-hmm. yeah uh it made a whole lot of sense yes. it made a lot of sense one of the things i think that was a, a piece of hip-hop drama and is part of where we are today is there's a dichotomy and my friend Richard Nichols who used to manage the roots Mm, talked mm -hmm. about this often that he would talk about getting an assistant or a a volunteer or whatever and he would get a white person and he said if I get a white person I'm going to get somebody who wants to really work hard and wants to learn he said if I get a black person they want to come up Mm. And he said, I can use the person who wants to work and learn because I can I can exhaust that. Yeah. The come up, I don't know how long that come up is gonna last. Right. And he said one of the things, the reasons why he believes that exists is that it's about privilege. Mm. You can have the privilege to give up everything. Mm-hmm. When you ain't got shit, you are very afraid Absolutely. to Absolutely. give up anything. Oh, yes. And that's where that do-it-yourself piece is a is problematic mm-hmm. for particularly for black folks coming yeah. together. You know, so we don't know that the punk grant, the groups that created record companies or like Stones yeah. Throw or whatever, any of these people that are doing alternative stuff, yeah. we don't know what their resources are. Right. Yeah. That they can walk into a bank and actually get mm-hmm. a loan. Mm-hmm. We know that most of us can't. Can't. Yeah. That's definitely if we're coming from the need to have to do it yourself. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, it, yes, which it, a yeah, lot of people come from a, a situation where they don't really need they to don't do need it to. It's a choice. Right. Like, I, I had a chance in Buffalo to meet Annie DeFranco. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Annie DeFranco, the, the arts organization I work with uh, for years, Hall Walls, is in Buffalo. Um, they're sort of like the Painted Bride Art Center here. Yeah. They, uh, she bought a church. Mm hmm. A huge complex. And she brought them in to take a lease of space in her church. She does performances in her church and she has most, she has living space in it. It's, it's amazing. And Annie DeFranco talked about this, doing it yourself from nothing. And you know, I mean, she's not, we don't know. She was completely broken out of it, but it's just brilliant. Her choice of what she's done. Now, Erica Badu has done the same thing in Dallas. She's one of the few black folk that you could point to, Who's done that? There are more people who are thinking that way. LeBron has done mm-hmm. a bunch of different things. Mm-hmm. 
Beyonce and Bouncy has done trying to do things in that way. These are people who have some resources. But there's also some folks out here who don't have nothing yeah. who've managed to do some amazing things as well. The, the problem is that we don't see them as examples. Right. Our media doesn't cover those no, people no. and say, hey, look at this. You know, for whatever reasons, yeah. for whatever reasons why we don't see that, that's for sure. Yeah. And I think that that, that underground approach, that understanding um, uh, that you need to um, uh, make something happen, share it with other folk, uh, make something else happen, and continue to build your thing. I mean, I, I know I've struggled myself for a long time in trying to create collaborations or uh, entities that were filled with collaborators. It's not easy. Right. It's not easy. But I think that underground thing and focus of not trying to be in the pop lane. Right. In the mainstream lane. To find your own method to share, like this podcast, yeah. share information, to share your craft, to sell your products. Everybody needs to do that. Yeah. But I think what's what's happening, particularly for us, is this desire to be mainstream. Yeah. Yes. Definitely. I to be accepted yes. by that. Yes. Is more is stronger. Yeah. Than it needs to be, mm-hmm. and it shapes your vision and your mission. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that idea of underground, of alternative, of do it yourself is it's almost completely contrary to what's driving the person who wants to do this thing. And yeah. most rappers you meet, they want to be a rapper. Why? You know, I can get paid. I can get bitches. Pay bitches. You know, it's sort mm-hmm. of like, come mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. Come on. Like, I've never met one rapper that uh, said they wanted to have a... a Middle class income. Right. And in fact, there's one, what is his name? Yellow, it's not Yellow Man. It's, can't think of this guy from Queens who's a Jamaican toaster rapper from mm. back in the day. And there's <clears throat> an article, I don't know if it was in the source or not, but it's a while ago. And he talked about how uh, everybody thinks he's just a regular dude that works a regular job. Yeah, yeah. But he tours, he's had that hit. He had a hit at the time that was hot in Panama Mm, mm -hmm. and France and Switzerland and Japan. So he was traveling around the world making his $100,000 a year annually, performing for a couple years. And the rappers that he knew that he grew up with said he was whack. He was a bum. He probably worked at the airport. But in reality, he was still doing it. Still doing it. And he wasn't doing it at a scale that was controlled by the mainstream. He had his own mechanism going. Mm-hmm. And there's quite a few people who've been, what's the other guy's name? Is it Tech Nine? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Tech, Tech Nine. Tech Nine mm-hmm. is one of those people. He's got to be almost, he's got to be 40 yeah. now, at least 40. Um, he's been doing that for a long time, too. So it's possible. It's possible. But it's funny because we don't respect them. Like Jay-Z gets right. all... Jay-Z all the, and yeah. Beyonce are the big fish that ate up all the fish in the in the, in the the pond. And that's who we aspire to be. Yeah. Um, I, I got my own issues with all of that. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. I think that alternative possibility just 
slips right past people. Yeah. And it's uh it's interesting. It's interesting. And I think it's valuable. And to a certain extent, part of the people that we know are about the fact that they did it themselves. Fifty Cent did it himself. Till everybody recognized him enough to want to give him some money. Or mm-hmm. Eminem did it himself until they Realize that, oh, yeah, he's making enough money that we can give him some of his money, mm. you know. Um, so that's, I, I think the jazz musicians used to do it. I've been a strong advocate for jazz musicians doing mixtapes. Yeah. Like a mixtape is a free sample of your mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. How is your audience that you don't, that the audience that you don't know going to find out who you are right. unless they participate in yeah. some way? Yeah. And, and I, you know, one of the things that I, you know, I, I think a couple of things. One, you know, I think that, you know, part of what we as black folk as a like, you know, as a segment in America writ large have really like fallen accustomed to is very much to your point of the mistaking acceptance for access, you know, where it's like the <laughs> access is important. Whether people accept you or not should not be a priority because you're constantly chasing a thing that you won't ever really get. And like, like, do you really want that? Like, I mean, because, and the way that I think about it is for people that treat you that shitty, like, do you really want them to be your friends? Which is like my, like, I, I kind of laugh when like young white people are like, this area is super racist. It's so segregated. They don't want any black people to move in there. It's like, why the fuck would you want to move there? Like, I, you know, if, I am not the ruler of the world, so like you can't outlaw racism. You can't make it illegal. I honestly prefer that people show their true colors so that you know what you're dealing with. So if all of the racist people or all of the whatever people want to live in one particular segment of the city, it's like, have it. Right. Have it. Do it. Like, now, you you can't like assault people who happen to walk through. You can't like burn someone's house down if they like you can't do you can't break the law. But like, you know, but, you know, but it's like, you know, my uncle's racist. Like, you know, he hates black people. It's like, I mean, that's your, that's your God given right. Like you can do that and do it out in public. So I know what I'm dealing with. So like, Hey, I, I don't even want your space. So and yeah. that's also, you, that's, that's their right. And their uncle's right. Yeah. And that's also their responsibility to deal with that. Exactly. That yes. ain't my responsibility. It's not my responsibility. Yeah, you deal with it. Because I, I don't know your uncle. Right. It makes you feel conflicted and uncomfortable. Yeah, it sucks. But that's the least you can do. Right. That's the least you can do. And I, you know, I also think one of the other things, particularly just like with a lot of stuff, and I think definitely in Philadelphia, is just like the whole concept of an alternative culture within black communities. It's just so like shunned or like not a thing. I mean, and this was a thing that I was sort of just having and like not in a struggle because it's such a first world problem, but like thinking about like, well, where do I want to live in Philadelphia? Like, where do we want to buy a house? Because we, we were very focused on being in a black community, but it's like there were certain parts of like, you know, this is not to make anyone, you know, it's all good, but like, it's not my thing. But like the whole sort of like, Northwest Philly, you know, I'm a, I'm a Kappa or I'm an AKA and I go to Enon. That's totally cool. That's not my thing. If that is your thing, do it. Have fun. God bless you. A lot of people in my family, that is their thing. I'm not a mega church dude. 
I'm not really a suit and tie guy. Like, I don't have a paddle, you know, a Q panel, you know, paddle in my, you know, I didn't go to an HBCU, so don't yell at me if I did not get, but like, I'm not that dude. Right. I'm not that dude. Like, I'm the black dude who's trying to listen to Bad Brains and Fugazi. And it's like, it's like, and I can, I can even get down with gospel, but it's like, I'm going to listen to some gospel and then I'm going to watch Weird Al Yankovic. And like, <laughs> I know there's not a lot of me, but like, I want to be around, but I know that there is more of me than like exists, but like, we kind of, you know, like don't even want that to come out for some reason. And I, I don't know what that's all about. Well, it's because, the, uh, it's funny, like when you talk about the frat and sorority shit, those people made me sick when middle school. Yeah, yeah. So I'm disconnected from them even more so as an adult. Like, get to step in. Because that's like the black version of Mean Girls and Mean Boys. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Like, the truth absolutely. is, like, you, you, it's a regiment. It's a regiment. Forget you. Yeah. If I had followed their advice, I would not be who I am. Mm-hmm. If I had followed them, I would not be who I am. Yeah. I would have never had half of the experiences. I would have never talked to Hussein when I was 16, 17. Yeah. I would have never done any, read any of the things I did. I would have never done anything. You know, no, you folks don't matter. Yeah. That's the real truth. And those are the people who are, those are the people that you'll find out who are, how do you, how, how? Because mm. they don't know how. Yeah. They don't know how. You'll see those people follow you or standing behind you in the supermarket looking at your food. Yeah. Do you eat that? What is, take a damn chance. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? You don't have to ask my permission mm-hmm. to take a chance with the choice of your life. Yeah. Mind your business. Yeah. You know what I mean? So the, 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 what you feel as an outsider, I've experienced as an insider, right. yeah. outsider, mm. mm-hmm. to step in. Yeah. You know what I mean? I have no patience, no respect. I didn't go to my, um, I, I didn't go to my prom. Yeah. I didn't like them fools enough. In high school, I hated those folks. I couldn't wait to get out of high school. I like ran out of the graduation. I don't even think my mom and pop came to my graduation because I didn't want to tell them. Sure, yeah. Like I hated that joint. Hated high school, and uh, that and that's funny because this this ties to that the mean girl, mean boy thing is this overwhelming desire and um, mechanism to be grown mm. as a young person. Mm-hmm. These motherfuckers grown now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they're still dealing with the stratification that they yeah. dealt with back then. Yeah. So, yeah, it's like, and I find the more and more I talk to people that I used to know from back in the day or people who have that, they all want to loosen up mm-hmm. and, yeah. and, and experience them. Like, nobody's got time for right. that. It's, it's like the people I grew up with who were in jail or on drugs. They sort of see you as the positive cat. Mm-hmm. Can we hook up? I need to be positive. Right. I need some positivity in my life. Man, I'm living my life. Yeah. I'm doing me. Catch up. Mm-hmm. You know, you, it's not you, my responsibility yeah, to be you, your you, positive you've person. You've taken the chances. You, you've been uncomfortable. You've been ostracized. You've been mocked. 
And like, yeah, I mean, you got to earn your stripes. And I think one of the things that like they think is that if they hang out with you, it will be easier for them. And it's like, it, it's actually not like, it's not going to be easier. The sooner you deal with it, the, the better off you are. And, and it's one of the things that like, you know, I've, I've told people about like, for me in the world that like we're living in now, where like everything's upside down and topsy turvy. I've said like, I'm actually super comfortable because since I've never really felt like I fit in with anyone, I've been dealing with this since I was seven years old. I've had to mentally survive it. I've had to figure out, okay, well like how do I actually um, at least peacefully coexist with people who like think I'm a weirdo? When you're trying to figure that out at eight and then, you know, I've built my life. I'm still a young man. I'm only 40, but it's like, I'm good now because everything that I've wanted, like I have, I have access to, I have an understanding of what, why people are the way they are, but it's like, I had to earn it. And, and it, and this piece that I have has, was followed by years of being like, yo, maybe I'm a lunatic. Like, like there were periods when I thought like, yeah. Like I, I literally might be the only person on planet earth that is going through this. That's like a shitty thing to like go through, but now it's like, no, like I'm good. And it's one of the reasons that, you know, as I mentioned, like I wanted to do this podcast because like, like, you know, this, I really do feel is, you know, is a value add, especially for kids who are like, ah, like I'm thinking of making the leap. It's like, yeah, no, like it, mm -hmm. it's, it's a real thing. Like, you know, th these, these are real tangible people and one of the reason why I wanted to have um you know folks like yourself is like you're just like you're a real you're a real person you know you have your flaws you have your virtues but you're you're not the um you know like the sculpted image of a TV celebrity no, I'm, I'm, I'm not too broke you're too broke and, yeah. and you know it's funny too that I, I think what you what you just described that piece about being alone it's clear we're not alone yeah. and that anybody out there listening, if you want to try something, to do something, to be something, to create something, do it. And here's the reason why. Whatever community you're from, if, 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 if you feel like your community is going to, there's going to be backlash for the choice that you make. Here's the thing. A million years of development. A million years of development. When you take an aspirant, a million years of development to get there. When you cook something, when you make, when you eat cheese, when you drink beer, we're talking a million years to get that all of these people who added to that story to make what we're possible to do today and we ain't finished yet mm -hmm. and so do you want that million years of progress to stop with you right. because you refuse to be brave enough to do something right like with with, with cheese you know the, the the normal idea is this this cat had the uh the uh the the, the uh leather canteen mm. And he has milk in it. And everybody else threw their milk out after they were finished. Yeah. Cleaned it out with water because it was a mess. And the, the thing was, they didn't know what that was. Right. 
But this one fool said, oh, I'm going to keep mine. His friends could have said, what are you, an idiot? Mm -hmm. And he kept it. And these curds were in the bottom of it. And that becomes the beginning of us being able to eat and understand cheese. That was a mistake. It was a mistake. Yeah. But it was a mistake that a dude or woman said, hey, I might have something. Mm Mm-hmm. So are you going to be the one that stops the million years of progress in whatever it is you're going to do? Is that sentence going to be un or incomplete because you didn't have the guts to continue it? Yeah. That's really the real question. And for me, as a young person growing up, I was like, hell no, I'm not letting these idiots who don't know what cheese is mm-hmm, <laughs> to yes. stop me from making cheese. Excellent, excellent. I think that is the almost perfect point to end on. Um, you you have unknowingly stepped into uh, the thing that I've been asking um, uh, all the guests to do, which is sort of like you know uh, impart some words of wisdom for the any young people that are listening. So something about uh, you know your your vibe, like you picked up on it. Yeah, and I I really like the idea of the whole thing of like. I might have something here because I think that a lot of when we when we hear about people who have changed the world in whatever way we interpret that we think that it's like this epiphany that comes to them in the middle of the night and the whole thing is laid out and it's like and and here's what the end result is going to be it's like it never is really what it is it's like you know what I may have something here and many times you will do something and it's like I thought I had something I actually didn't or like I did but I kind of didn't care enough but Really, it's just that, like, yeah, I, I'm, I may have something. So, um, before you go, can you just let people know what uh, artistic endeavors you are working on right now, so that if people want to support your art, they can. And for anyone who's listening, this is happening on April twentieth, two thousand nineteen. So, if you hear this in the year two thousand fifty, don't go to these. You know, <laughs> if it's live projects, don't go. But yeah, if you're if you're listening somewhere around the end of April two thousand nineteen. Mr. Homer, what are you working on and how can people support your work? I am part of the Whitman at 200 celebration, which is a celebration, a citywide and actually nationwide celebration of poet Walt Whitman, whom, if you don't know him, is really, he, if you're a writer, if you're a modern artist, he's like our unknown grandfather or great-grandfather as a modern artist, uh, as a poet and writer and thinker. His work was a couple steps forward in the 19th century. Uh, in a way, he thinks like we would today in the 19th century. Mm. I mean, he has his own issues around race, around Native American rights and drama. But at the end of the day, he's a product of, he's a white man mm-hmm. of the 19th century. Yeah. So he's going to be as, relatively speaking, as racist, as mm-hmm. confused, and as problematic as any other Absolutely. white man of his time. Yeah. Um, but his poetry was really powerful and uh, shaped what would come later. In fact, one of the, the accolades he gets from people is that he may have been America's first hippie, mm. which uh, speaks to some of the principles of freedom and... Um, uh, what being an individual is about and what that means to be an American. And so my project is, uh, it's called New Songs of the Open Road based on one of his poems. And what we're doing is a series of four public walks uh, 
where we sing songs of affirmation. And the idea is to synthesize Whitman's poetry, his uh, knack for taking hikes and walks, and merging that with civil rights movement protest marches. And one of the things that they did was sing. So we're merging these two ideas of, of uh, Walt Whitman who sort of maps out what freedom and individuality is in America with the civil rights workers who actually took it to the streets mm, and mm-hmm. said, we're, we're going to prove that right. this freedom exists. Right. And they risked their lives to do that over and over again. So um, you can find out information about the project. There's four of them, and the last one will be July 7th. But uh, you can go to Whitman at 200.org. That's Whitman and then AT200.org. Or you can go to my website, Philadelphia Jazz Project. That's P-H. I-L-A jazzproject.org You can find some information about those things that we're doing. I'm working on a couple other little things that are quietly working on a a book and uh, a couple concert series. um, And concert series through the Jazz Project? Yeah, this this Jazz Project thing. And and can you uh, just, you know, tell people briefly, I mean, so the the jazz project is like really like your your main vocation at, at the at, po- the, at, at present at, this, at yes. this point yeah so at, so are you the executive director of the Philadelphia yeah, I'm the, Jazz the, Project the director founder director okay. and uh, it's about just about eight years old it was developed as, really as a challenge from a philanthropist who challenged me to uh, reinvigorate jazz in Philadelphia about eight years ago and I've spent about three million dollars. Uh, to that point uh, to attempt that Um, and as a visual artist I'm not a jazz musician my uh, focus is an interdisciplinary approach where we merge for me jazz has always been this this cross section or intersection of different disciplines dancers have always been part of of jazz tap dance is, is Part, is fundamentally a part of jazz. Yeah. Um, there's jazz dance, mm, which mm-hmm. that's a whole nother story mm-hmm. uh, about uh, that. There's painters. There's poets. Langston Hughes was part of the jazz community. Amari Baraka was a jazz poet. If you if you want, you, we could say that. Um, painters and photographers and even chefs and bartenders are part of the story yeah, of jazz. Absolutely. So it's um. It's an interdisciplinary universe, and so that's been a part of my approach to presenting um, events and creating opportunities for the musicians as well. So that's 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 our thing. Excellent, excellent, Homer. Thank you very much. This has been a, a great conversation. We've tackled a lot of issues <laughs> i feel like we've inspired some people i'm sure we've offended <laughs> some people which is what i'm going for the strong reactions are uh one of the things i want to do so thank you so much i really appreciate thank your time. you very much absolutely